looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Let's do this. All right. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 507. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And this is very nearly a cursed episode that almost didn't happen due to a variety of technical difficulties. But now, via the magic of Skype and a landline, we have the great Tony Stella returning to Wrong Real after far too long a hiatus to talk about one of his great passions, one of his great obsessions over the past yeah, few yeah. decades, Japanese cinema, specifically the world of ninjas. So Tony, it's been a hell of a long time since we had you on the podcast. It was been it was our uh, it was our Fellini episode back in early 2019. So it is an honor and a privilege to have you back on the show. Oh man, great to be back from the way back. Uh, and what could be more fitting than in a virus situation with clad and masked people everywhere calling back on the landline? And this is really fitting our lo-fi action topic. And yeah, you said it before, man. It's it's really great to be back. I, I feel like since Fellini, you've banged out nearly a hundred episodes, including episode 500 with Becky, which was such a you really guys pulled it off. What a beautiful thing! Uh, gave homage to all the episodes that come before all the players that are involved the whole family not easy to do and it was totally satisfying and yeah and i mean all these new voices you have on there dave lambert who made it impossible for me to ever record another western episode and uh, the mini irish invasion you got going right now and uh, moose has been introduced and uh, yeah this is man you're, you're going really strong well moose and, is coming back soon but you mentioned something after i did my episode with moose that he and i totally neglected to tackle his own obsession with like martial arts and eastern weapons and things like that so is there anything you want to supplement the uh that like that that episode now do you have anything you want to add that he and i felt because you said you kept waiting for me to bring up this side of his personality yeah. but i was totally unaware of it at the time now i know he's like a fucking ninja expert high kick like master of all weapons moose is the real deal i'm the pretender i'm the movie nerd behind him i'm operating i'm crank he's the real deal uh, moose knows kujikiri which is basically the ninja secret hand seals with a chant he can do that for us i've seen him do it and yeah we've been talking for a long time and i've, I've encouraged him to come on the episode and i'm like dude you're perfect you're a stuntman this guy is a living legend and he just completely didn't bring any of this up so uh he was actually part of this uh you know really intimidating uh episode that we got coming up because this came up i think in our very first episode already i mentioned to you that if you had seen any of the shinobi 
no mono films and you said no and I completely freaked out and said oh we got to make a topic of this and basically through it got delayed and delayed because this topic is so huge and intimidating I didn't know kind of where to start how to break it off so I said basically Moose let me um let me handle the the traditional ones that he hadn't seen, the really um, uh, the high point, the golden age, and then you can come in for our part two of kind of 80s ninja mustachio uh, Franco Nero or something. He can kind of pick that one up because he was live in that time living in Japan on the army base. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. that whole early 80s ninja craze was such a fun time to be a kid because – whether it was in the pages of G.I. Joe or whether it was in the pages of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or it was like canon films with like Revenge of the Ninja or Ninja 3 The Domination, suddenly ninjas were just everywhere in pop culture. And there was a strange hybrid between breakdancing and ninja culture because there was this place called the Hall Street Market in Richmond where I'd go as a little kid. And on one side of the store, it was all like breakdance boards and like parachute pants and like spiked <laughs> bracelets and like, like t- cassettes and things like that. And on the other side, it was throwing stars and nunchucks and like ninja outfits and but they dovetailed so nicely and I know I never quite knew what was the catalyst for like how breakdancing and ninjas became so oh, popular man. but I think it was canon films because they were making both breakdancing movies as well as ninja movies yeah at the and time. I mean you you almost were a perfect fodder for the foot clan I mean they could have lured you in with the skateboard on their ramp and shredder could have recruited you no I mean that was the the U.S. was really behind in that. And I had my own sort of way while I, of course, was totally in love with that and scoured through the pages of Black Belt magazine for ninja weapons. And I think we went into this on an early episode. I threw a shuriken into my cousin's head while our mom kind of confiscated our illegal weapons that we had ordered off a mail order catalog. And I mean, in the 80s, there was nothing more than I wanted than a ninja costume. And I would fantasize all about that. But luckily... I used to go long summers to my grandparents in Italy to see friends, and in Italy, it kind of the 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 movies made it over. They while they didn't make it to the U.S., there were some parts of the classic kind of um, uh, ninja fantasy, both in manga and in animation, early animation. Uh, it was called Magic Boy, and it kind of edited out any mention of ninja, but. Sarutobi Sasuke, who is one of the most legendary ninja figures, he will later feature on in the Shinoda film, and he that that was an animation said the film that honors the memory of Walt Disney, and this was sort of a typical Italian marketing ploy, so they could stick the Disney logo on it. It was very misleading because in the first couple of minutes of the film, there was a couple of suicide bombs, people being chopped to pieces, so it had nothing to do with Walt Disney at all. But that kind of opened my eyes that there was a world beyond Franco Nero and the kind of really cheesy Joffrey Ho Hong Kong Ed Wood kind of uh, ninja craze that went on, all part of an exploitation that as that picked up through uh, Shokusugi and the canon films, it really became a part of, of popular culture like Every 80s sitcom had a kind of ninja episode. I mean, 21 Jump Street has ninjas on it. And like ninjas were really becoming those ninja kids and ultimately, of course, ninja, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Band of Ninja, which was an Oshima film from 1967. And at the time, I didn't know that. It was all in Japanese. But it basically had the drawings of Sanpei... Shirato on it. Sanpei Shirato was the godfather of Japanese ninja manga. He created some of the most legendary figures. Kamui, I read really early on, that made it over into Italy. And um, basically, it was just a sheet of 
um, like the old, you know, remember those Marvel power-up sheets? It had the description all in Japanese, of course, so it was totally lost. But you saw the drawing, you saw the size relations, you saw this guy had a sickle, the other guy had a giant hammer, a mallet, and then you saw different, you know, monsters, and, and all of that completely, like you said in the beginning, it fueled my obsession with ninja that was beyond the 80s craze and kind of as I traveled later to Japan, I completely hungry to finally see the real deal. And at the dawn, I mean, we have to remember, like even in 2020, when we're coming up with the, this episode, it was so the scarcity and inaccessibility is insane. I mean, we're, we're, it's just the limited understanding still of Japanese cinema is mind boggling. I mean, the BFI list just put BFI British Film Institute just put a list of the hundred best Japanese films together. They are so boring and stale. I mean, it's Ozu and Kurosawa, and they have none of these flourishes in there. And yeah, I feel like I I hope we can spark a fascination or an interest to go back to these really really beautiful ninja masterpieces that have some of the best character actors of world cinema some of the best cinematography crazy innovative scores and it's all happening as the kind of japanese italian back and forth influence with their harmonica themes they're making it over already before the westerns and they play a huge part in the ninja movies so yeah it's it's just uh let's hope we can piece it all together and this won't become too unwieldy of an episode but basically i'll just want to point out some of my favorites and hope people can track them down or even uh, inspire some of these companies uh to hopefully um you know uh, give it the love these films deserve and bring out some beautiful box sets uh, a couple things on that front First and foremost, when you mentioned buying the weapons, my older brother and I did the same thing. We bought a, a throwing star, and we had this poster of a girl on a door down in our basement. I was eight. He was like 11 or 12, and we kept throwing the shuriken over and over again. We figured as long as the poster was there, my mom would never discover like all these holes in the door. And then we were about to move, and of course, she took the poster down. She's like, what the f- fuck have y'all been doing down here? Anyway... It was a delightful time to be a kid when it came to discovering all those weapons. But when it comes to tackling these unknown chapters of film history, it's kind of every writer's dream or podcaster's dream to help people discover things that have not already been well and thoroughly discussed and explored a million times over. That's why people love listening to Tarantino talk about you know old Hong Kong action films from the early seventies because oh, they feel man. like they're going to get early access. They feel like they're going to get like inside info about what are these cool kind of obscure gems. But it seems like yeah. almost nowhere is anybody talking about this great golden age of ninja cinema in Japan in the 60s. And there are a couple of blog posts that you can find online that summarize and call attention to a lot of the same ones that you recommended to me. Because it seems like from like early 60s to like 1970, you just had this genuine golden age that spawned a lot of imitators. <clears throat> So I'm thrilled to be able to tackle this undiscovered country, all of which are movies that I had never seen before. And so that's, that's just incredibly exciting. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds on discussing the plot of each and every single one of them, but maybe the best thing to that's do before we me. get yeah, started, I think before we even get into the me. history, we need to talk a bit about Tony Stella, because obviously you love Japanese cinema. You've been drawing uh, you know, posters and art inspired by Japanese cinema for a long time. So before we talk about how you got into these movies, what are you doing right now in terms of DVDs, Blu-rays that people should be aware of? so that people can see some of your stuff online and, and support some of the fine work you've been doing. 
Oh yeah, I mean, uh, it's it it's it's actually pretty weird that um uh, a, a time as this virus hit, I was kind of like cresting, riding a real nice wave with my work, getting more and more recognition thanks to you, thanks to all the episodes, but also through this, I kind of talk about it every time, this resurgence of the handcrafted images coming back and. Yeah, and all of a sudden everything stopped. The movie industry was kind of like in limbo, and it still is. A lot of cool projects I've been working on I still can't talk about because I don't know where these projects are moving. They don't seem to know themselves. Release dates are being pushed back, and unfortunately some of the invoices as well. I've done a lot of cool work that's coming out that I can't talk about. As I think for the uh, most recent one, it's a nice Arrow box set that came out um, from Shinya Tsukamoto, which is... Uh, everybody knows it's kind of a cyberpunk Japanese new wave uh, really cool innovative filmmaker that's best known for Tetsuo Iron Man and like amazing filmmaker and I basically got to contribute to that and um, I think uh, also later hopefully not too far delayed will be coming some real cool Japanese underground gems from the 60s that are kind of industrial espionage movies which is a really cool subgenre what about that amazing poster you did recently for Last of the Mohicans? Was that just for fun, or was that for a re-release? That's an old poster that I made where I basically, it's all the Native Americans up front, Magua, uh, really big on there, and then kind of, they're all in the background. And I was always annoyed how much uh, Hawkeye, Daniel Day-Lewis, got uh, exposure, and I was always fascinated with Chingachgook and Uncas, and I wanted them to shine. So And yeah, they, they, it's it's been catching on, so hopefully... Yeah, hopefully somebody's going to use that for uh, for something. I've got a lot of requests coming in on that front. But uh, my guess will be I'm going to have to put Daniel Day-Lewis front and center again. <laughs> he has good agents. But somehow that Michael Mann pulled this off, it just now to look back at it and all this digital age, it's just this glorious, he captured all this magic and you somehow, they're lost forever. You can't go back to it. It's a really special movie. And uh, yeah, I remember you and Marcus talking about on uh, early Michael Mann episode. Well, when you think Michael Mann, I mean, everybody thinks like Thief and Manhunter and mm. Heat and all these cool kind of urban, edgy crime flicks. And out of nowhere, you have this astonishing historical epic that just stirs you at the core of your soul. And so, yeah, I, I, when I saw what you had done with it, I, I just couldn't believe how well you'd brought all those characters to life. You yeah, just it's actually knocked it out of the park. Super old, uh, well, super old, it's maybe six, seven years ago. Uh, but yeah, some of these I never like, and then all you have to do is put them in the drawer, let them rest a bit, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I can't even do that anymore. That's a nice style I had. Uh, uh, I, I try to change my style as much as possible so it doesn't get stale. And um, uh, or I can't help it really. I can't. There's no continu continuity. But yeah, with this, some of some of these, uh, they they age better than others. Well, speaking and, of your style, is it your drawing of Samurai Spy that's being used in IMDb for the film? Oh, that would be cool. I don't know. It's I a hand-drawn illustration, but it looks re like it might be early Tony Stella. But Ooh. yeah, go to IMDb and look at and look at Samurai Spy for 1965. But I think it might be yours. But if not, somebody who is maybe you. Oh, yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, hold on. Oh, that, that might be the, oh, my internet's too slow. Sorry, that's that's part of the reason we can't communicate is because I can't. My internet doesn't work. So uh, yeah, hopefully I will, I will check big as we always do. Uh, please to illustrate a lot of this what we'll be talking about because it's going to get confusing. We're going to post uh, the usual barrage of uh, uh, Twitter uh, feed and uh, and thread as you call it for this episode where we'll illustrate some of the cool techniques we'll be talking. We're getting into some of the costumes. 
and some of the history maybe even to start off with as yeah well let's like, let's ease into the history then because it's going to be very tempting to like summarize the entire history as well as the plots of all these movies because it's all so unfamiliar with a lot of people but i, I want to make sure that we focus on the ingredients about these movies that really scream out to you but i want to make sure that we really focus on the details of these movies that can't be discovered online through wikipedia that can't like i, I want to avoid summaries but i do think it'll be yeah. useful to talk a little bit about this period in the late 1500s, early 1600s of warring clans where yeah. ninja and samurai and ronin and various warlords were all competing. And because in, in America, ninja are almost like, they're almost like superheroes, <laughs> whereas in a lot of these movies, yeah. they're more like spies and assassins and saboteurs and things like that. So set the stage because so many of these movies featured the same characters, historical figures. And I think just a little backdrop will be very useful for anybody who yeah. to hear us talk about these movies. I mean, my, my personal journey and anybody who is on this road with me, we can kind of see each other. We recognize each other because it's been so hard pre-internet to find these movies are from, who directed them, how it links to history, the w different warlords that are part of history, but also some are made up, some ninja are real, some are mythological figures that uh, come to us through folklore. And so it's been it's been a really a long journey and, 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 and glad I, c I, can, I can kind of shine some light. Hopefully I'm not a super expert on the history but i for me as as you said before there are many genres to be covered and some of this uh, uh, has magic some of them are really gritty and real and this is more basically where the history starts off the term shinobi dates almost to the 8th century back there's the term shinobi which is shortened form for the term shinobi no mono which are part of the series of movies that we're discussing here shinobi basically means to steal away to hide and mono means person so it's like a uh, stealing away person it's a sneaky spy and um the ninja was the more popular term that through time, especially in the West, got popular. But shinobi is the actual real term for a male ninja. And so, yeah, most of these stories, as we've been discussing before in our samurai episodes with Kurosawa and Kobayashi, most of it takes place in the Sengoku period, which is 15th century, 1467 to 1615. And this is the Warring Clans era, where basically these three power players are featured, and we get Oda Nobunaga, a crazy ninja hunter who's obsessed, gets really paranoid with the ninja, wants to stampede them out. Uh, uh, Hideyoshi Toyotomi, who's in power at the time, he's kind of on top. He, he, he starts to rise to first military commander and shogun. And Tokugawa Iyasu, who is going to be the biggest shogun of them all. He's at the end of the, when the wars are done, when he's, he's the last man standing of those two, and he's going to usher in this 200-year peace under the Tokugawa Shogunate and really uh, ferment this uh, strong leadership. He's going to reunite all these dispersed clans, and basically that was the end of the glorious age of the ninja. As, and the, as the ninja came to an end, as the wars were dying down, there was no more real need for spies. Some were still employed, like famous Hattori Hanzo, who's a real figure. He was employed as a bodyguard for Tokugawa. And, um, and he's been played a million times by a million different actors oh, over yeah. the years, like Sonny Chiba. And, I mean, he plays a Tori, ha a Tanzo, uh, Tori Han I mean, how can you say it? A Tori Hanzo in Kill Bill, because <laughs> Tarantino yeah, loves true. Japanese cinema. Yeah, and Ishikawa Goemon, who is the first Raizu Ishikawa role, and it's also real ninja. Um, they knew each other. He was he uh, did that famous poison thread attack on Odo Nobunaga. Uh, 
that we see. And as Dr. No hit, who's already, he, uh, Fleming is so uh, uh, steeped in ninja and, and spy knowledge that I always love that part in, in Dr. No when Bond goes underwater and he sucks air through the, the bamboo chute and kind of is able to travel. That's a ninja technique. And uh, later on, of course, in You Only Live Twice, we see many things copied. And that was basically one of my big exposures also as a kid. Well, to Roald Dahl, who wrote that script, loved a lot of the movies we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and, and uh, of course, Fleming traveled to Japan, and he was introduced at the time in the 60s. He, he must have seen the ninja boom, the real ninja boom of the movies. Basically, all got started with this one Shinobi no Mono film, and which offered a different take to the already super popular ninja genre that was all magic and flying and, and a very much fantasy orientated that in the imagination and got reimagined as kind of mystery, uh, legendary ninjas and that are associated with crazy abilities to to fly, even to invisibility, shape-shifting, and one of my favorite techniques, the ability to split up into multiple bodies. Um, the, that's called, that's the technique Bunshin, it's called, and that's actually, we can see that technique in the, the eighth Shinobi film. So it got bigger well, and bigger. Why did but samurai in, movies get so well-preserved? Because I feel like if you want to watch samurai movies, even in America, you can find them like in pristine condition, but these ninja movies, apart from Samurai Spy and the Criterion Channel, they're really hard to find. And, yeah, it's mind-boggling to but me. They're basically, really they, but they seem like cousins or si like sibling genres or subgenres. You would think that a lot of these ninja movies would just be right there alongside the samurai films on all these major platforms. So I, that's basically my big mission. I talk to anybody I can, and I'm, 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 whenever there's a Criterion wish list for the next title, I'm like, Castle of Owls, Castle of Owls. Why are you not? Why is nobody bringing these movies out? It must be really complicated rights issues. But then again, I don't know. I think um, it's 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 partly it's almost like the ninja mystery and stealth and the, the the secrecy has part to do with it because there's very little historical information as the stories and the folklore always got written about the noble noble brave samurai those were the stories that wanted to be told so because if somebody one of these great leaders actually fell ill we could say in the fantasy that he got poisoned by a ninja and all of these things really did happen a lot of uh, things got reinstated uh, kind of how do you say, um, later on uh, re, uh, reinterpreted. A lot of, lot of historical figures all of a sudden were given ninja abilities and samurais were uh, rumored to be ninja. And basically this all comes from, from, a, from a legendary region. So we're now not talking about the movies, but the history again. The, the mercenaries, the spies for hire, basically what they were, all came from the Iga province. This is a, is a secretive kind of location near the old capital uh, Nara and the nearby village of Koga. And these two, the, the Iga and the Koga, are basically these two clans that always get pitted against each other, legendary uh, clans that spe specifically trained for that, and alongside that came a, a way of life, uh, a, a real code of honor and a secrecy. And that kind of stopped the spread of these stories, and a lot of these stories just didn't get passed on. Even though the the uh, the Banten Shukai, which is uh, a basically a collection of the Iga and Koga arts, the training of the ninja, and it came out in 1676, and it preserved a lot of the knowledge on military strategy, uh, weapons, and uh, even astrology, philosophy, and 
it was basically we know a lot through that. Uh, the, the, even modern, when they t teach ninjutsu, the art of the ninja today, and in, in schools, a lot of this is it's going back to these manuals that were preserved. And it was ex actually the Tokugawa who. So it's actually due to him that we got a lot of the the the, the things we know uh, 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 historically are coming from this manual. But also, as we said, in the 1920s, then through manga, through newspaper serials, like in the states, all of a sudden these. Um, ninja stories became really, really popular. And one of the biggest fictional characters, uh, Sarutobi Sasuke, he was a Koga spy, and he was part of the... He's a fictional character, and his friend was... Uh, um, was uh, Saizo the Mist. He comes up in later movies as well. He's an Iga ninja, and they're part of the Sandara Ten Braves. And these were stories that really got into kids' minds, but also later as we see really big art house uh, directors are starting to interpret these movies and give it a different twist because they all loved and grew up on these manga, on these, on these stories and uh, early animation. Uh, and yeah, so this is all a really complicated cocktail for anybody outside of Japan to decode so much is lost, first of all, in the terrible subtitles. So yeah, I, I really struggled initially to get over yeah. the hump because there was so much terminology, so many characters, so many things I were just unfamiliar with. So I was constantly just like using every online resource I could to find like a synopsis of the movie just to kind of keep the, the name straight. And what really got me confused is when you have certain actors playing different parts in like later movies. I was like, what the hell? The star, Shinobi Nomono 1 through 3, now he's a different guy. Like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> anyway, it, it, I definitely struggled initially but I feel like, as the old expression goes, the juice is worth the squeeze when it comes to the yeah, effort. I, and even if you don't appreciate every single little detail of these incredibly complex plots at times, you're still going to get to watch some fucking badass ninjas like scaling walls and go climbing across moats and sneaking through hallways and cutting guys' throats in the night. And like just to see the antics at night, see them at play using the tools and the skills of their trade it's jaw dropping and it's unlike anything you've ever seen in any other movies like this period exactly. just these these black and white nighttime battle scenes were just cotton candy for the eyes i just couldn't believe how cool it was it'd be like somebody all of a sudden saying hey there's this like cool genre called the western and like no one's yeah. ever, no one's talking about it but it's got guys with like cowboy hats and guns and they're like they're outlaws and bandits and sheriffs like i feel like it's almost like a, as rich a vein as that and just blows my mind that these movies aren't being celebrated by genre fanatics, people that are like confirmed genre freaks. I just feel like it's been one of the great, I don't know, I mean, I won't say crimes because there are other people out there who obviously love these movies as well, but I just can't believe how undervalued and underappreciated so many of these movies have been for fucking decades. I mean, every Jalo, every slasher movie is out there and lovingly restored and it's, it's mind-boggling that these these are, I mean, I would, I w these are better than all of them. As it just in terms of movie making and and the beauty of the film, because as we always talk about the golden age, what 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 got me so fascinated was just the staggering cinematography, and I find that this is a way in for everybody. The music, the 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 acting is brilliant. I mean, you got because of the old Japanese studio system, you got absolutely amazing A-level cast in some of these, you know, absolutely. Um, mythology tales. I mean, this is what we always wanted when we did our medieval episode. And there are so many. There's a watershed year. Basically, like in Kung Fu, we discussed in our Jackie Chan episode, there's always a breakout year where everything comes to a head. And the same is true for 1963 in Japan. All this 
this folklore, mythology has been laid dormant. All these manga that people have been reading are all of a sudden uh, not anymore uh, uh, stylized, flipping around, uh, very beautiful kabuki almost children's movies or fantasy movies, but all of a sudden Dai starts a, a big studio, starts a big new series, um, and basically this is the proof blueprint for everything we're going to see. The Shinobi no Mono series, it's nine films, and it stars Raizo Ishikawa, who is one of the most beloved Japanese actors of all time. He's uh, unfortunately died really early on at the age 38, I think he was, and he did 160 movies somewhere around that, and yeah, two years after his death, Daiye went bankrupt, and the whole studio went under with him, and he was just, it uh, was the changing of a guard, and you know, you cannot imagine he did almost like 10, 12 movies a year at that time. And that's why you get so much of these sequins pumped out right after each other, these sequels. And, and the first trilogy of these Shinobi films that basically die, trilogy Shinobi and Mono series, are coming out every year. And then the second and third in the same year. その代わり信長を殺すのだ。殺します。必ず殺してみせます。人の面は When I watched them, and for people who want to, who are curious about these first four movies, we're going to discuss Shinobi no Mano. If you go to a website called Asian Crush, you can watch them with advertising, or you can subscribe and watch them, uh, you know, just as part of the package. And it's basically as good a copy as you would get on like a DVD from like the early 2000s. It's not ideal, but they're very yeah. watchable, and you can find less 
reputable quality co copies elsewhere. But if you want to get, I mean, this is how I started my preparation on this. I just dove right into this first quartet because I, I watched the first four and then I watched the ninth, which kind of wraps things wraps things up. But it's like watching the coolest TV show of all time because they all end with like cliffhangers that lead <laughs> right into the next, especially between right two into and three. Right into the next, yeah. And it's 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 part of historical fact. And actually, there's an earlier movie for Real Freaks if you want to track this down because the Samurai trilogy by Hiroshi Inaki gets a uh, Inagaki gets a lot of love with uh, Toshiro Mifune, and um, there is actually a 1957 one and then a 1958 color ninja movie that is sort of the transition into the shinobi no mono it's the yagui secret scrolls this has been told many times uh, it's the same cast as musashi so mifune is a ninja toshio mifune is a ninja it's beautiful looking gorgeous costumes but with like with all the inagaki films unfortunately they're not really great films they meander and they kind of lose the story and the elements and they're not really fleshed out but the highlights are so worth watching so track those down the opening theme is basically basil polidor's conan you you're absolutely ready to run through walls there's a there's a red sunset shot which is one of the most beautiful things you will ever see in cinema there's a valley of buddhas as they meet as these monks meet there's a duel with Mifune versus uh, Yagui Jubei, which is one of the legendary samurai of folklore, on the bridge as slightly the snow starts to fall. And it's really cool. Two ninja films that slightly predate this series and absolutely worthwhile tracking down. Just absolutely gorgeous movies. Nowhere on Blu-ray, nowhere on DVD. So, um, yeah, hopefully... hopefully uh, keep an eye out for those. Those are fantastic. But yeah, they are very different to the Shinobi no Mono series. They uh, are based on a newspaper serial in the 1960s and 62, and then five original screenplays, which basically came out. A novel from the newspaper serial, and then the five following original screenplays. And they are a dark look at the really ninja life. What is it meant to be a ninja? What is it meant to be an assassin? What is it meant meant to be subhuman, below or lower class? They're basically all, like the Dirty Harrys. They do all the jobs yeah. that no one else wants to do. Like Samurai exactly. can't be, you know, they can't besmirch their honor by doing these contemptible tasks. So you'd bring in the ninja to do the, to do the dirty work that no one else wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why, uh, as it ties into the early one, uh, that's why a lot of the stories lost. And these were ugly tales. These were tales of torture and uh, rape and uh, limbs being severed. This is all in there, by the way. Uh, this is 1963, and we're getting uh, some more brutal than others. But right away, we're getting uh, uh, a look at 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 villains that haven't been explored. This is something I I love. We discussed this on our Spaghetti well, Western I got exposed episode. to it a little bit in the flesh when I went to Kyoto back in 2007, and we went to this giant castle, and we were walking down the floor. Uh, I was in one hallway, and I started hearing all these sounds, and yeah, it was one of those, some of those famous nightingale floors where they have these like yeah. nails below the wood, and it quite literally sounds like birds, but it's just metal scraping. And I was like, what is going on? They're like, oh, that's because of ninja. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, because yeah. they would sneak in and try to kill people, so they had to basically booby trap the floorboards to keep your assassins out, and that's when it really hammered home to me that 400 years ago you had these goddamn ninjas sneaking around killing people in the night so you had to change all your floorboards accordingly yeah exactly i mean Rizo falls uh, falls victim to one of those in i think the second or third one yeah at the end and of the second one he's trying to take yeah. out uh is it maybe hideyoshi at the end of uh the hideyoshi, second one yeah and that, who, li that, who live who's whose decadence is shown by he's sleeping in a western bed in a big high poster bed it's so good and he sneaks in he's so close 
and yeah, give them away because Hattori Hanzo gave him the plans, but he didn't mention the floorboards. Yeah, really cool. Yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but that, but the ended, the ending of the second, though, the ending of the second, those might be my one of my favorite highlights oh, yeah. of this whole it's journey. It's the highlight, and it's one of the most so killer cliffhangers. It's so important that at the first trilogy finds the second ratchets it up the and then the third one brings it to a close it's really important in the first trilogy like in the bond trilogy and all those few remaining perfect trilogies that we have uh this is so important that the second one picks up on the intensity and it really delivers and it leaves you wanting more it's it's so good well let's but, let's dive into these first three because obviously i really yeah, was, uh... i really want to shout out uh, another actor okay uh, he's really important in the first first movie uh, because the villains are to me are the most important and uh, Yonosuke Ito he's a great great character actor you'll recognize his face immediately from Sanjuro he plays the long horse faced kind of uh, 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 um, um, uh, what is he uh, bailiff or he, he, he plays he's in all over Japanese cinema he plays here the 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 sensei who's also doubling as kind of with a, uh, the facial expression. This was something that I picked up in the first one. I was like, I'm home. This this movie is for me. He's a face changer, basically. Through magic or makeup, we don't know. It's both suggested in here. Uh, and he's just one of the best faces and uh, best character actors in Japanese uh, cinema. He plays in all the cool style movies. He's in Stray Dog. He's basically Sendai, the character. And he, it's like he's basically ruling two garrisons and pitting them against each other for like the yeah. ultimate expression of ninjutsu. Yeah, exactly. He's in Kanto Wanderer from Saizun Suzuki. He's in Samurai Assassin. He's in The Lone Wolf and Cub. Other people will know him as Retsuro Yagyo. He's playing the, the big bad with the white hair, uh, great, who, who, who chases Ogami Ito. And then we got Tumatsuburu Wakayama, who is Lord Nobunaga. And this is the brother of Shintaro Katsu. He's the famous Lone Wolf and Cub Ogami Ito character, but he's in Ridley Scott's Black Rain, for people who know that more. He's in over 500 films. He gets his own series, The Wicked Priest. He's in tons of Yakuza films. He's always, like, he can play anything. He's either the lovable comedy fool or the most insane violent boss level king and he's Nobunaga and he plays this perfectly this is the real life ninja hunter as in the first two he's really the big bad he's the one that all the ninjas want to take down as revenge and so that sets us up with these two kind of pitted villains, which I always think in this movie genre particularly, we get some of the best villains, like in the Spaghetti Westerns. Well, they're also, not... these are, we're talking about, I mean, obviously the main character in the trilogy is depicted in a heroic fashion, but we are talking about characters whose job it is to like sneak around and murder and steal. So nobody's really like the white knight samurai. I mean, you have some that are nicer than others, but I, I love movies and franchises with like a lot of moral ambiguities. And I feel like there's a lot of people in here who have a lot of ethical and moral shortcomings, which is makes it part of the fun. Yeah, and we get like right away we get really cool little we get in this basically ninja clan, we get the Iga clan, we got Goemon who's Ishikawa plays Goemon versus Yohachi. It's a young uh, it's a young ninja and they're basically an arrival relationship they're like basically uh, pitting his skills against each other they're always like who can get ahead who can get the better who can get the better plans who can make a name for himself and it's kind of Raizo is becoming he's, 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 he's becoming the, the first ninja Yohachi sets out and 
gets ca ca captured and he's in the castle dungeons. Also something we rarely get to see, the dark side of these beautiful Japanese castles deep down in the dungeon. And the torture scene is insane where Yohachi gets his ear cut off and dark noir noir cuts and, and really brutal like torture and ninja techniques are all in this. This is really the blueprint for everything that's going to come. Uh, well, it's also like the moments, ninja are all trained not to speak under any circumstances yeah. or betray their mission. But there's always somebody who's willing to kind of put that to the test. And like you said, the torture scenes are ruthless, like hacking people's ears off because there's always the chance they might break. And so <laughs> you see it over yeah. and over and over again. These are like, all right, we'll throw acid in their face or hang them upside down or chop their legs off or whatever the case might be. So, uh, these, these movies are not for the, uh, the faint of heart at all but i love but but this but this first trilogy though they, it goes together so well because i think it's because it's based on like on one book and i yeah. think that's what makes this for i mean for me i enjoyed the uh the fourth one which is called siege but because the main actor is playing a different role than in the first trilogy i perhaps it was like less near and dear to my heart whereas like oh, these because yeah, if you watch on, the first is basically setting up, it's, it's great, the fourth one is setting up a, basically another trilogy. Gotcha. And so it's a little bit slower, but what's so unique is that we switch sides. So Raizo is playing in the first one, Goemon, which is a historic ninja. In the second trilogy, he's playing a, a folklore ninja. He's playing, uh, playing um, Saizo the Mist. And this is a fictional character, but it's also he's also working for Hideori. He's on the other side. So all of a sudden, we're asked, which happens a lot in Japanese cinema, that we're asked to look at the other side. Sometimes Hattori Hanzo's the, the, the hero, sometimes he's a villain. The Yagyu are often the villains, but in the Yagyu Chronicle 9 movie series, um, they are the heroes. So it's, it's, it's super interesting that as these nine films play out, it finds... They are less, um, how do I say, they're less in the kind of, the story peaks with, of course, Ieyasu taking power. But what we get later on as they, they loosen up a bit in the story, we get a lot of flourishes of just cooler booby traps and, and like uh, ninja versus ninja, which is always important. It, it's not ninja versus samurai. That's less interesting. But when Iga is pitted against Koga ninja, this is where, because we get masters, they, they're able to sniff each other's techniques out more. So this is where it gets really well, good also later I love on. it when you have ninja who have known each other for years. Like they come up through the ranks together and like, oh, like I've known you for 10 years. And they're kind of friends, kind of competitors, kind of enemies. But you see this again and again and again where they all kind of came up through the ranks together. And so they're aware of like who's good, who's not, etc. But you have these old, like it's just a, it's a fascinating little subculture and some of them have a code, some of them don't. And that's one thing I love about the, the ninth one in this series is like one of them frowns upon stealing, but another one is really into stealing. And it's, but once again, we're, we're talking about, you know, disreputable characters. So, like, not yeah. everybody's got the, uh, the same code. There's a few uh, tender moments with beautiful girls, uh, often either ninja girls or prostitutes who are bonding with the ninja because they're basically outcast underneath and they're finding a lot of uh, kind of some of the burden of life they're sharing their their lost souls and they're sharing uh they have always a brief reprise in in the middle of all this non-stop action that's going on and you get a lot of this repeated kind of i want to leave this life but i can't sort of moments um uh, but some do deal with that better than others like in the ninth one in the mission iron castle that's done really well yeah, that's but, one that's uh, one of the strongest of the ones you recommended but i think for people out there who've not seen any of these i do think the first shinobu namono is a great place to start because 
it really yeah. sets the stage for the role they play everything. in society. Like you see these like this like this school with this elaborate training sequence that reminded me quite a bit of You Only Live Twice, where some are doing hand to hand, some are working with the staff, some are doing throwing stars. And you see it quite literally is a school training these people that can be hired out as mercenaries or assassins or whatever. And it just I feel like it does the best job of introducing the uninitiated into what's going on and just for sure. and it it has trap doors and it has Masks and it has disguises. I mean, this really, if, if you're only watching one ninja movie, this is the one uh, to, to start with because if you, if you don't catch it after that, I, you can't be helped. This is really, it has it all. It has um, uh, some philosophy. It has, at the end, these, these little details that I always appreciate. It has all the best things of a survival movie. It has the best of an action movie. It has the best of a break-in movie, of a heist movie. It, it combines all these super cool genres into one i mean there's a the great poison thread um uh, uh, uh basically uh attack in the rafters uh, and that's some of the, we see a lot of the details how you're putting together how you're preparing for certain things we see a lot of the gear and the instruments yeah i mean lowering it. the string down through the hole so carefully and then putting those little drops of poison and we watch them slowly go down and obviously it was reused and you only live twice and used reused in other movies but and i love how it doesn't quite land perfectly and the poison doesn't kill him it just kind of makes him go yeah. delirious and insane but the attention to detail and then on the other with all the side, techniques is what makes these movies so special and fun. Yeah, and then as, as he lies sick, we see some of that folklore magic come in. This is one of my favorite scenes. We see the chant of both the white-bearded sensei and then a black priest on the other side, which are just the shots through the fire are mind-blowing. I mean, just of a rhetorical viewpoint, these, these shots are just... If, 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 to see them on a big screen must have been absolutely insane. And there's some of the magic chants basically to voodoo curse, uh, put a voodoo curse on Nobunaga so he dies. But he escapes and he, he, he launches a sneak attack and he, he levels the ninja school. And, and as uh, the, the, the sensei, the two-faced sensei who plays off these two fractions dies, we see his mask slowly disappear, but then it grows back. So we know it's not really just the use of makeup that he employs to play these both sides. There's a little bit of magic sprinkled in, a little bit of that that mythology comes through and this but, is really but also a lot of like gunpowder what's cool about this is like you when you yeah. when, when, I, when you watch samurai movie like, oh, i'm gonna see bow and arrow i'm gonna see swords i'm gonna see castles i'm gonna see armor but what i love about this era is that we're seeing the beginning of like the industrial revolution so you've got riflemen and you've got bombs and the ninja they use a little bit like whether it's flash powder or gases or grenades or whatever i like how while they've got their traditional claws and their grappling hooks and their ropes and all their you know old school weapons that have been around for centuries, they are starting to employ all this new modern technology as well. So it's an interesting hybrid where it's not quite like a modern day war movie. It's not quite medieval times. It's this strange transition period, and the ninja are uniquely equipped to take advantage of of skills and tools from both sides of the divide. Yeah, and when they meet each other, it's always this. They sent some of the movie and later in, 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 in Samurai Spy, one of my favorite scenes in cinema history, when they sense each other, the presence of another ninja, this is some of the simplest lo-fi techniques used to the greatest effect. Like when you want to show speed, all you get is a couple of guys rustling bushes, but at such a distance that it would be impossible to cross over. But in the movie, you get the illusion, this guy is just moving through the, the thicket, like, oh my God, how fast is this guy? The and Samurai Spy nothing. has those bits where you you have these cutaways where you'll see feet 
moving really, really quickly, but without sound. And it makes them have the illusion that they're yeah. as quick as like the fucking flash. Like, oh my God, like how fast, like you, we've seen it sometimes yeah. like in video games and in animation decades later, but these stylistic, like it's just these brief little Simply cutaways. Simply dropping the sound, exactly. Yeah. Simply dropping the sound in the later Shinobi films, uh, Raizo goes and he's on a mission, exactly what you're saying, to basically the Industrial Revolution, uh, revolution. the last chance for the Toyotomi to recapture power is to basically secure this rifle deal, which is a deal with China, and they're manufacturing this secretly, and Raizo goes on a really cool secret lone spy mission, and he's in disguise, and he travels, but at the market, he gets spotted because basically he's walking without sound, and these two guys just munching down on some, some, uh, something at the market there, right away, you see the alertness in their faces, like, oh, this guy, watch, and they follow him, and of course, they're ninja, he's a ninja, but these little flourishes and details are really, that they pay attention to this, they're often ignored, and this is why I love Japanese cinema so much, the eccentricities of the villains are amplified, they are, um, they're really uh, not just glanced over, and we see a lot of the preparation and 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 the kind of secrets that go into making this life, as well as the hardships. Um, the, later on in the series, we really see what, what how horrible it is. In the 80s, you know, in American ninja movies, you always want, hey man, this is fucking cool. You grab a dune buggy, you kick, a, you kick around, you surf a little. Ninja life seems freaking cool. Grow a mustache. Here, it's just absolute hardship life of, 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 of just um, yeah, being, being uh, in the that's a, it's in, uh, is it in the third ninja? In the third ninja, one of the great villains, he lives basically on the toilet. He lives underneath this castle yeah, yeah, in the I love shitter. That. He's, he's just, he's just kind of hanging out <laughs> and, down there. Exactly, and that's how the Lord communicates, and that's how he gets his mission statements. Basically, he's like screaming down while he's taking a shit, and he's like, "Hey, I want you to assassinate this guy," and he's like, "Great demon voice down there." But we'll get to that later. There's a so let's start getting into the guts, into the meat of these first three movies because there's so many incredible scenes. I, I think my my favorite of the three is uh, Shinobi Nomono Two Vengeance. Yeah, but yeah. I, I mean it's hard to talk about them individually as movies. But I guess like when it comes to the actual historical character that the star is playing, it sounds as if his actual life ended with where the second movie ends, being boiled boiled alive in oil. And then of course the movie is like ah, oh, but it, but it was faked and he survived thanks to Hattori Hanzo and he so on and so forth. But it sounds like a lot of this, at least the first two movies, is based on historical fact when it comes to this guy. Was it Goemon? Is that how you say it correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Goemon Ishikawa. He's uh, he's really a ninja. He lived, or <clears throat> he's who knows of, of his abilities, but he is definitely a, he operates as a secret guy, and he lived from 1558 to 1594. And he really attacked Nobunaga, failed with the, with the threat, with the poison, that was his historically recorded. And, but unfortunately, yeah, he, he got boiled alive for it. And uh, the great thing is that these ninja movies allow to happen is that they are using these historical facts which will be immediately recognized to anybody in Japan and they, they know and then they're able to freely play with those because what if they have a double stand-in at the end this will come up in the third movie so I'm jumping ahead again but Hattori Hanzo basically intervenes because they want to use preserve his skills and, yeah, and Hattori Hanzo is a master of disguise Hukugawa. as well Hattori Hanzo is exactly. always popping up in disguise throughout these he's always popping up he's always in there he's kind of meddling he's as you said before the ultimate ninja craft is to play both sides against each other 
other and never be seen. So this is, and he tells him over and over, and no, you don't go for your revenge, this dude. There's a smooth way to get out of this and get paid, and and uh, they're mercenaries. They're, they're they're really there to get paid. It's not the and they uh, this comes up later. They're loaned out. They're they're basically for hire, but it's like a brothel. You go and they're out disposable and disposable as well. If they, if yeah. they die, no big deal. There's always more being trained. More being trained, and since the buck stops there, there's Omerta, there's no secrets being spilled. It really is a great service to hire if you need to get rid of some guys. Well, number and yeah, two the revenge also, story is insane. Yeah, it's because, so hardcore because you open up with number two where he's he's retired. He's no longer a ninja. He's a loving father. He's got a wife who's worried about the other ninja that are being kind of hunted down and rounded up. And then the, the, when the house gets attacked, and I couldn't believe couldn't just believe how it. ferocious this movie became because his fucking baby gets thrown in the goddamn fire, and he goes yeah. on a warpath just killing them all, but he's like, I, I couldn't believe just how graphic and savage and dark this movie got, but of course it turns into this incredible revenge saga because he's trying to avenge the death of his baby boy. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and and, and you really have no clue it's coming. You, you can sense this is too good because at the end of the first one, which becomes kind of a staple, he runs off and he screams, Maki, Maki, she, she's the love, she's his love. And th the second one opens up there, secluded in the mountains. This is another staple that we see returning and returning. He's basically successfully made it out of the life. He, he's no longer, he's freed from the ninja life as his master dies and he just wants to be retired in the woods. And Maki, they get a beautiful baby boy and Maki basically says, uh, we're being hunted down, we, we should watch out. And he's like, no, don't worry. And as soon as he said it, the thugs burst into the room, basically, and throw the beautiful baby. You just, you see in a few moments and how tender of a father is, they set it up perfectly, so you just, your blood is boiling over as the baby gets thrown into the fire, and it's all over. They basically transition to her home as he's kind of, uh, uh, this is the Saiga clan. They're kind of a Buddhism, last Buddhist outpost as they're being prosecuted as well. And Hattori Hanzo intervenes on the heights of the Tokugawa and Hideyoshi and Nobunaga. Hideyoshi is basically now in power. He's in full swing uh, as the military leader. And but this movie also gives us... the really I, good... But it gives yeah. us also gives us Ayayasu, who's one of my favorite recurring characters in all these because oh yeah he's the big you've boy. got all these great warriors and you've got all these great you know ninjas and stealth artists but Ayayasu he's very patient and very cunning and he's a schemer and he's a planner and I love he's always basically just lying in wait because he knows that his enemies will eventually he knows that his enemies will eventually destroy each other so whether it's Mitsuhide and Hideyoshi or whatever the case may be all he has to do is just stay out of the way and let everybody kill each yeah, other and, and, and he can swoop way, in and take over <laughs> not easy to play the court system this one also gives us really fascinating uh, look into the court intrigue we see how vassals were really treated we see how the system of gifts uh, uh, and, and honor is pl in place to keep everybody in line and really to lend war funds that you don't really have, but you can't say no to a lord. All this stuff plays a big role. And that Tokugawa, that Iyasu is playing everybody off against each other is so hard to do because later he's he's the most changed character in every movie he's basically played by somebody else yeah. but of course he's a great uh japanese folk uh japanese folk um but you always got to give him respect because he basically is able to reunify japan and all these different crazy clans by just like you said playing the right cards at the right time and going into battle later even though he's kind of a coward but then when he's forced into it he gets a lucky break the, the war doesn't have the sea, you know, but he's in the front lines too fighting. And, and so it becomes 
really, really interesting to see not only the ninja action, but in the second one really played out the the kind of favor system that's in place and who is who's really in charge and who's behind what so it's 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 and i love the siege sequence like the siege sequence when they got this village or castle that's being starved out and just you get so much detail in terms of like the moats and the walls and how like you have these official battles going on and then you always have ninja kind of running around like kind of sneaking in and out and looking for reinforcements whatever the case might be but it's just so damn cool it's just so damn it's cool so seeing cool. when they're in their when they're in their full look- ninja regalia dressed in all in black, and it also it happens again and again in these movies because they're shot in black and white. You'll have an entirely black frame, and all you can see is the white within, like the eye, the eye slit of the mask, and it just creates yeah. these astonishingly beautiful dynamic moments where they're sneaking around the shadows, like underneath the buildings, on top of the buildings, and after a while, I started thinking, like, God, well, how come you even like create these rafters or holes in the first place? But it seems like some people are really good about leaving spikes down there or stabbing through the floor or stabbing through the ceiling. Everybody kind of gets wise to the fact that these gaps above and below the floors are just like, you know, always going to be filled <laughs> filled with assassins. Yeah, there's always somebody down there or up in the attic. It's great. A lot of these things, when they happen, you're like, yes, there it is. It, it becomes like the Bond movies in a lot of ways because you need these these things to happen you need the hat being thrown by uh by bond you need money penny you need and all these payoff moments happen throughout and yeah like you said i mean it's crazy brutal as nobunaga continues on his path of vengeance we see crucifixions and everything is going on and nobunaga really half i mean two-thirds into the movie the big first villain is dead i mean he 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 gets his arms chopped off. Uh, Goemon tracks him down, and he sees him suffer for his son's death. He really lets him burn alive. It's so satisfying. But then the second, the last third is setting up a new villain. We we see Hideyoshi, and it, it's kind of the thing we alluded to a little bit before when they set the siege to the Saiga, the last clan. He really the only thing he becomes. Uh, to kill Hideyoshi, and, and he, it's the crucial se- genre kind of staple that happens. At the end, there's always, at least in these movies, there's a castle, castle sequence where we see the break-in, we see the kind of attic, how he cuts out a couple of the bars, we see traps or no traps, how he circumnavigates those traps, and then the floor, floorboards, that's the scene you mentioned, the, the kind of the singing floorboards. And as the guards rush in, as he's trapped, the doors fling open, the shoji doors, he throws a dart, kind of a guard jumps in front of him, and we see Hideyoshi in his western bed and all the kind of decadence, and Goemon misses and gets captured, and that's basically how the second chapter ends, very much like what's always hailed as as the best second chapter, the uh, Star Wars, we see um, The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's very much a yeah, dark, He's bleak quite ending. literally being marched toward a boiling cauldron, and as soon yeah. as I hit that, I was like, oh, it's like it's three in the morning, but I'm starting the next one right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's so good, and and that shot. I mean, in the white robes against the dark sky with the fire. It almost reminded I mean, me like a Mario Bava movie, like Black Sunday or oh, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it all of a sudden they get gore, horror, a move later on, especially as we heading towards the seventies. There, there are really cool uh, like horror elements that are coming up. Well, and the um, third one, what what blew my mind was when they started getting into some big giant historical trends, where we see that Hideyoshi is not content just to rule Japan. Hideyoshi wants to invade Korea, and he's going to yeah. cross the ocean with one hundred and sixty thousand men. I, I just, I couldn't believe the scale. And these these movies do not have giant budgets, but somehow you never notice 
and they somehow are able to convey the scope and scale of just these giant historical trends and these fascinating individuals kind of swept up in, in all of it. But like Hideyoshi obviously is trying to groom his little boy to be the uh, the heir apparent, which is obviously infuriating his uh, his elder son and. I found just it, you have court intrigue, you've got like this underbelly of crime and you know shit going down, but it, it just combines so many different flavors. And so I just I found my, these these first three are just so damn strong back to back. Yeah, as we see, Goemon basically he gets a double to stand for him, another thief. He gets boiled alive. Hanzo saves him, but as his head is kind of his shriveled, boiled head is on display, Goemon uses this to basically scare off and create this legend around himself that the head is all of a sudden speaking, that it's the head is getting a burial, then he's dropping some money which he steals, and it's basically this is for Goemon's funeral. So the legend around himself is really mirroring history as these ninjas become larger than rife mythology and folklore. We see a ninja actually apply that as a technique in this third well, movie. Well, Hideyoshi knows that Goemon's alive because yeah. he, at one point when he's about to get shot, he pulls up all these floorboards to protect himself from the riflemen, and Hideyoshi's like, oh, well, floorboard defense. Only it's, it's, his it's technique. An, it's an advanced technique. I was like, oh, that's so fucking cool. <laughs> it is so cool that certain ninjas will have a technique that they're famous for. Later we see it with Saizo the Mist and, 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 and many others, that uh, Toma the Mask, and this is what the Italians really infused the Western with. This is the same with the Japanese. We This is really paid attention and valued and honored in, in these movies. We see different ways of sword holding, different techniques, as even between the Koga and, and Iga, there are different techniques, the way oh, they handle yeah. themselves. Well, I think my favorite sort of like is that the guy dressed in white and samurai spy who's constantly holding him out to either side. Mm. But, uh, but the, the choreography and the variety of technique is, is so damn cool. And yeah, that the third one ends so well where you got Hidetsugu committing seppuku, and you also have him kind of taunting uh, his, his nemesis that he's like basically, this, he's become like an old man, he's a dying wretch. Yeah, this and he tells this him that Ieyasu is going to be next to rule. This repeats a lot because obviously there's only so much they can do because they have historical fact. When you play with these figures, how do you? He didn't die in a spectacular way. Hideyori and Hideyori, his son, is who's the beloved son. But as Hideyoshi lies dying, they basically take liberty and say, yes, he was visited by a ninja at night. This we see over and over again in Castle of Owls, slightly different, but. Uh, these historical gaps can kind of always be used as little ninja explanations as you know also in um, later we see it in the Kurosawa we see it in uh, in um, Kagimusha as the doubles are taking each other who knows what really happened who knows and when he this is really a great monologue that that Raizo have who we want we want him to kill uh, uh, Hideyoshi. We want him to just like slaughter him and as he says, cut off your ears, stab out your eyes and let you suffer. That's what I had planned for you. But he sees him there like a senile old fool, sick in bed and he says, I gave up everything. What a loser. You're just, I can't believe, you know, he, he calls Hideyoshi's name, his son, and he's just there in bed and he's like, the he really, Raizo con conveys the scene the best. It comes up later in Castle of House, but the way he just almost like spits on him, he's like, oh, you're so sad. I can't even kill you. Like, my mission is over. Like, this is just, I let you suffer as long as you want. You're, you're lying there all senile. And this demonic laugh that we often get the voice in the off, the voice that gets thrown around, that's how the, the third one ends, basically. Yeah, but I love and, the laughter being used as like a weapon to like to taunt or distract yeah. or misdirect. Like, the, the misdirects are always so cool because... They're not 
like it's like a, I mean, in a video game, you have like tanks and you have like ranged DPS. They're not tanks. They don't march headlong into battle. They use distractions and misdirects and illusion and deception, and yeah. so they'll create like silhouettes with shadows and smoke. And it's almost like you're watching fucking Batman. <laughs> take yeah, yeah, out. for sure. I mean, Hideyoshi. Then he he's also like, I want my son to take over. He will rule the world. And then he thinks you'll think I'll let that happen. He will never rule the world. Like, and he leaves him with that. He'll let, leaves him with that. This insurance. Now he has to ponder, why is he going to kill my son? This is the legacy I leave. Like, is he, is he going to... And then he says, yeah, so he will, the Tokugawa will rule the world. I'll make sure of that. Well, so, that's what kind of cool. fucked me up going into the fourth one where I got confused initially because yeah. you have an extension of that struggle where you're now seeing it from a kind of different point of view where you have Hideyori and his mother being besieged in Osaka Castle and they've got like 70,000 ronin and they're surrounded by Ieyasu's like 200,000 men. But you've got your star now playing a different role and I was like yeah. I was like I'm so confused what's going on and so Especially I had to kind of imagine without subtitles I had no clue I saw these in Japan when I was living in Japan briefly and I was just for me to figure out what's going on only Saizo Saizo I kept hearing it's like what's going on and then obviously Wakayama comes back. It's completely crazy. He is the old Nobunaga who's already dead, but now he plays like a really cool, honorable uh, samurai, and you're like, oh my god, it, it gets really, really confusing. The, the one that stands out in the first one, it's really the music is such a bombastic opening theme by Akira Ifukube. He did the Godzilla theme, he did Damajin, he did Satoichi, he did the Buddha by Kenji Misumi, the Burmese harp, and we get this really cool, for the hip-hop heads, we get this really cool Koto string sound, ding-dong-dong-dong, which is the Wu-Tang sample that's in every Wu-Tang album always used. That's from this movie. And the Wu-Tang, Glenn, they've re-released a lot of these movies as well. I, I guess it was the, maybe it was the Ninja Hunt or the Third Ninja with a copy yeah. I saw on Blu-ray on uh, YouTube was a rip of a DVD they had distributed. When I used to go to New York and 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 in the, in the nineties for my records and stuff, I got a lot of these movies on VHS. Uh, from the Wu-Tang collection, which drove me nuts, of course, because they mess up Kung Fu and, and Samurai all the time. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. They have no clue what they're talking about in some of the karate and some of the Kung Fu. It's, it's mind-boggling. But yet, if you really dug them up, terrible, often crazy uh, gaps in the subtitles. Like you read some, and then there's like five minutes nothing, and you're like, shit, what's happening? It's completely lost track of what's going on. But yeah, that's how I built sort of my collection, really underground, and a lot of it on just bootleg VHS. Well, even when you're watching one of these, and it's not under ideal circumstances, you're still going to see sequences that you'll never forget. Like just yeah. like I mean, like in the fourth movie, you have this incredible bit where like blades coming through walls and the floor when uh, when uh, he's trying to assassinate Ayayasu, but he keeps accidentally killing Kagamashus who are Kagamushas who are in a, in a standing in his place. Yeah. And that that whole sequence just had me drooling and salivating. Or when you like see like like ninja being like crucified and like birds pecking at them, I think the cruelty and the barbarism and just like the savagery on display in so many of these just blows my mind. But I love it when uh, the girl's about to kill herself because she thinks that Kira Kagure has uh, has died, and as it turns out, Kira Kagure has been like in a state of suspended animation for 12 hours and he digs himself out of his own grave. He's like, oh, that's the art of Shin Ki. And like, just really, yeah, yeah, all that stuff just had me once again. I, I, was, I felt like this a little is, kid watching Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes fucking yeah. throw down for the first time. 
this is where we get some of the great uh, ninja v- villains as well. When as they're hunting down Saizo, now it's Saizo the Mist. He's he's on the other side, uh, he, on Hideyori's side. He's too weak in the end, and the last final mission just basically becomes we have to assassinate Iyasu, otherwise this this battle far away in Osaka is over. But as they kind of uh, try to do it first with snake poison in the steam room. He kind of drills a hole and the steam is coming up. It's so incredible. But that misses. The ninjas are ready. They're laying traps in the attics. They're booby-trapped all over the place. The second one just gets shot down from the rope as he's approaching the castle walls. There's like body doubles, as you say, all over the place. There's a great, beautiful jump sequence. And then there's Saizo in the end getting captured himself in the dungeon he gets basically starved to death, and we get the really cool fake death that where he basically holds his, it's a ninja technique of a fake death for a couple of hours to reduce all your vital signs, and then he gets buried alive, and the hand that rises up from the grave, as you said, that's like before the living dead, before anybody, uh, it's, it's maybe in some pre-Hall yeah, horror movie. This is 1964, so. Yeah, and, and, and it's such a cool scene as he rises from the dead, and, um, uh, yeah, the, the final attack as it all comes to a head, this is basically mirroring the real history again, the final decisive battle of Osaka Castle. In, in, in the film, it ends on May 8, 1615, but in the real history, it's a couple of months later in June. But the, the, that's just basically the big fall of Osaka Castle, and they commit seppuku. And what's great about Saizo, he's not... Um, not superhuman. He gets close to being beaten uh, a lot. Well, this of is times. the moment he's like he's in the bottom of that pit, and they throw a rope down yeah. to him. He climbs up. He, I mean, the, watching these guys climb the ropes it makes you want to do pull-ups and just get in shape because they're so athletic <laughs> yeah. and they're so springy. Especially he climbs with that music. To the top, yep. And Kake, who he thinks is coming to save him, is being crucified, and then they like hit him, and he falls back down into the pit. But yeah, so he's getting he's in a, he's in a very very tough spot. In this flick, so you see that these guys, while they're total badasses, they certainly are mortal. Yeah, exactly. And this is so. This is a lot of the the the, the anti-hero we get to see in the '60s come up, and and all the new waves around the world. But these are really anti-heroes. I mean, these are assassins. And even though in the Shinobi and Omono series, they are kind of as long as Raizo plays them, they're really still. There's always. This is what he's managing to do. He's such an amazing actor. That he brings always, a nobility to it just because of always, his personality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's just and, such a dynamic performer. And you have to imagine he he shoots like. He goes, he basically, in parallel, uh, um, shoots the uh, uh, Nemuri Kojiro series, which are 12 films from 1963 to 69. Parallel. He goes from one set to the next and shoots more of those legendary samurai movies. I mean, he's just working nonstop, never a break. No wonder he got so ill and sick afterwards. I mean, He, he died of pancreatic bleep. cancer or something? Or? Yeah. Yeah, rectal something. They couldn't stop it. It, it moved forward, and uh, it was really too late. Uh, it's so unfortunate. I mean, he often gets called. I it just drives me crazy. Description: the James Dean of Japanese cinema. I'm like, well, James Dean made like James three Dean? movies. <laughs> exactly. So fuck. Plus, he has nothing. He's a great actor. I mean, he plays everything. He plays. He plays. He goes. He's a trained kabuki actor. He comes from a legitimate kabuki heritage, which he had to be adopted into several families. He's changed his name many times and he also gets so frustrated in always playing background roles because you're waiting for your chance so long that in, in the 60s the, the, the post-war boom was happening and he's like in Kabuki you're always you're no good unless you're old and in film you're no good once you're old so he was really caught he managed to imbue 
all these different eras of himself. Later, he didn't get very old, but he plays fantastic through all the different genres in Japanese cinema. I mean, he works uh, in Enjo and with Konishikawa. That's his big break in 1958, the uh, Yukimishima, uh, the Golden Temple Pavilion. And uh, then he's basically groomed as Katsuo Hasegawa's, uh, you know, that's that legend, legendary actor as his kind of replacement. And they both enter, him and Shintaro Katsu enter both have their debut uh, uh, and enter die together as like 20-year-olds. And so they're always called Katsu Raizu. They're always playing along each other. And Shintaro Katsu is, of course, Satoichi. Everybody will remember him from that. And so they have many, many films together where they're pitted against each other. And even though later... Um, um, Shintaro Katsu said something really eerie about him because basically he was playing that really dark samurai role alongside these ninja movies, uh, the, the Nemuri Kojiro roles, which is basically an angel of death. And he managed really to put something into that very still role that is so frightening and scary. And, and, and Shintaro Katsu always said like that took something out of him. There's, there's a price to pay when you play that role. Well, so the, Oh, I was yeah, he's basically the heart and soul of these these, these Shinobi no Mono films. Yeah, I mean, they, they were incredible. And we've got one more. We're going to discuss the ninth in the series, but it comes at the end of the cycle. The so end, we're, going to, yeah. so we're going to save it for the end of the episode. But it seems like in between the Shinobi no Mono films and the ninth, there was a just a giant tidal wave of other kick-ass ninja flicks. Some of yeah, which... basically because we got, we got like we said, the watershed year of 63. So the first three fall into 62, and then the second uh, two and three are also 1963, right after each other. Then the fourth one that we discussed a little bit is 1964 and so forth. They basically continue until the ninth in 1970. But then there comes kind of like what is often called like among the ninja experts, uh, lovers, the Citizen Kane, uh, is Castle of Owls, is 1963 also in that watershed year, which is mind-blowing. It's a color movie, and it's done by Aishi Kudo. Who's and it's one available of the... on YouTube. It's not the world's best print, but it'll do. Like, it's not necessarily going to... If you watch it... There, I think there are a lot of people out there who are so spoiled by Blu-ray now that they won't watch a movie in any other format, and I feel like if you really want to see a movie badly enough, you'll see it in any format. And so it's like the aspect ratio is not perfect and it's a little grainy but the power of the movie absolutely shines through and yeah i think castle of owls is screaming to be restored and resurrected and re-released by one of these marquee you know physical media brands
but let's di- let's dive into Castle of Owls because I feel yeah. like this is another Castle- one that could be a great gateway drug for people if they're going to watch their first of all the ones we're talking about. This could be a good one to start with as well, just like Shinobi no Mono. Yeah, almost. I feel it's 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 very it's very different and it's bizarre. I don't know how to put it really in words because it really feels super modern, even though it's also 1963. It's the same year. I wouldn't almost recommend this as the first one. This is a, a kind of it's a very sophisticated tale and it's slower. It doesn't have much of the action, but what it has is a kind of it has a royalty to it. That that's why it's often the Citizen Kane. There's a there's a there's a self-assuredness with this movie that's really strange to put into words. It's by, done by Aichi Kudo, who's an absolutely master director. I'm I'm so fucking mad his movies are not widely available. He did Thirteen Assassins, the original, 1963, Eleven Samurai, the original, 1963, and these are like remade by uh, by um, Takashi uh, Miike. Yeah, Takashi Miki drives me crazy. Every time I see anybody online, they will basically get me chastised, and I will post lots of uh, stills. These well, are perfect I, I remember movies. one of our early interactions. I didn't even know there were earlier versions of 13 Assassins as well as um, uh, Harikiri. And oh. so I was talking yeah, about the Takashi Miki version. remaking of... Seppuku? Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. So I, mean, I was talking I'll about both of those, them. and you were like, those are fucking remakes. God yeah. damn it. I was like, sorry, I didn't know. Don't just, I'm sorry, this will always get my blood boiling because if you ever talk about two movies not needed to be remade, if watch The 13 Assassins or 11 Samurai, another masterpiece, I always I have Martin Kessler, I put Martin Kessler onto these and he's posting GIFs and every time I feel very satisfying to, to, to put people onto these and then see their reaction come back and like, oh my God, this might be the best movie I've ever seen. And yeah, so he's basically... Um, stars uh, Ryutaro Otomo, one of my favorite people. I think there's no better face in a ninja mask. He looks so, this is my favorite look of a ninja. This is my favorite costume. It's just so understated and perfect. The way it's, the head wrap doesn't crisscross. It's just straightforward. doesn't have any nece- unnecessary flourishes. It's just the perfect classical ninja outfit. And he is unfortunately a tragic death. Uh, most of the people in the West will know him. Uh, he's the ramen master in Tampopo. He's playing that as an old man. It's a beloved movie that's out in the Criterion Collection that I think most people would know him from. And unfortunately, he committed suicide in 1985 as an old man already. He jumped from the, the roof of his apartment with a, left a note from his wife. I don't know any more details, but it always shocked me when I found that out. He's one of my... He's in Watari Ninja Boy as well, in the early ones uh, of my ninja kind of obsession. He's always looming large. And so when he takes the stage as the Yuzo, as one of the, the Iga clan ninjas in this movie, we get this whole royalty we get he brings so much history with with this role and when he dons the classic um he's also basically one of the best ninja movies that we sadly won't be discussing because it's really hard to find a copy that's not russian in 17 ninja he, yeah, he's just, uh, on the, on the note, i should mention that people out there are looking for these movies sadly you're going to find that the russians for whatever reason love these movies but they also <laughs> love ruining them because they post them in perfect widescreen like pristinely restored and then they watch them and they talk over them in Russian describing what's happening. I don't know, how could somebody love movies that much to want to make them available, but at the same time totally not understand that they're destroying them by narrating over them? Yeah, it's not the like they're same. doing commentary. They're just translating. It's just like that's what subtitles and dubbing are for. But it's infuriating that like of all the ones that you recommended, and I noticed somebody else who created a list and recommended it as well, but Warring Clans, Detective Fencer, and Seventeen Ninja 
all come very highly recommended. And the only way I could find all three of those is with these horrible Russian narrations over them. And they just, it just destroys the movies. Yeah, and Detective Fencer, I, w- I will give some honorable shout-outs a little bit because that's so good. I've, unfortunately, I only got a really shoddy VHS of that uh, Wu-Tang collection as well, so uh, I couldn't get this to you. But, yeah, it, as soon as I hopefully this will spark something, we'll get these available, we'll, we'll come circle around to them because they're absolutely super. Each one offers something else. But back to Castle of Owls, that's, a, that's really um, – uh, we, we, we see, we basically, it starts off in the midst of battle again. Hideyoshi hunts ninjas. Now we're very familiar with oh, this it's topic. It's a ruthless we know the, battle. Like when you see his sister's yeah. been like raped repeatedly and their home is in ruins and yeah. she ends up stabbing herself and asking her brother to, I mean, like in the first five minutes of the movie, they throw you into the darkest atrocities you can possibly imagine. So let's dive into Castle of Owls, which is just this phenomenal revenge story that takes place 10 years after this horrible battle that we just described. Yeah, and 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 so Hideyoshi's Korea uh, Korean campaign um, is really at the heart of this again because it basically starts this merchant intervention where they are afraid that it's going to hurt trade and they want the warring states to come back. They want chaos so they can thrive, and so they hire Yuzo to to take revenge on their behalf, give him money, fund him to seek out and really uh, 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 take down Hideyasu. But Hideyoshi, sorry, we're getting confused. Um, and basically, Yuzo already knows behind all of this is the Tokugawa. If you watch these movies, it will come more and more clear that these stories are all interlock within the giant tapestry of the Japanese history. But we always are on the side of the ninja. We're basically here following Yuzo and Gohei, which are lifelong friends. They both train together. But as you mentioned before, while Yuzo is using his life as uh, an honor of the Iga Ninja, and he's tem- taking attempt uh, after attempt on Hideyoshi's life. Uh, Gohei is tired of it. He wants to become a samurai. He wants out. He wants nothing to do with this anymore. He travels to Kyoto to become really ambitious. And this is where we get like really, really cool uh, moments of just other masters, the way he senses the other master, Dogen, he's, he's a Koga master, and the way he kind of perceives his presence, it's like, it's, it's the, my favorite scene is basically when the old Iga master wants to take him out, and Dogen is sleeping, and just the description of the senses that he feels is exactly from the Musashi novel when Baiken, when he senses his presence. And it's really conveyed really beautifully here in film. It really comes closest to this novel. And he senses the attack. He, he kind of silently slides towards the door, picks up the spear above the door, and then, and then the silent duel between the two masters, one that's underneath the floorboards, and as Dogen slides across, and just kind of the terror in his eyes, knowing that he's being attacked at night, all in silent, it's just one of the best moments of any ninja movie. I love this so much. Well, and, there are even uh, like the little details scattered throughout the whole thing, like early on, before he even gets the assignment of like the guy who basically is the war profiteer, when we see him sneaking in, it's just little things like carving a hole in a sliding door, he opens it up and then he like he oils the floor to cover the sound of the sliding door like yeah that attention to detail is what makes the technique so interesting like in the 80s ninja flicks of america there's no detail like there's no finesse there's no you know authenticity it's those little moments where it just makes it all feel so fucking real 
Yeah, and, 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 and really we get this beautiful also friendship moment on the steps that has one of my favorite exchanges of kind of the ninja life, the philosophy. is, is It's really, uh, really beautiful. They're both in full ninja garb, so beautiful, like both in the, in the classic look. And it's, 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 there's an understanding between them, but there's also an understanding that goes both ways. And Gohei basically says, from tomorrow I'll chase you to the end. And Yuzo says, well, I'll come for your head before then. And so it's it's this great, like, I mean, this is like, just gets you going. And this is what makes Western go- so cool is when you have people who are friends and enemies who kind of like, very much they would love Italian. to be allies, but they've got different trajectories in their lives. And this is like, it's just the stuff. It adds just so much great drama to the proceedings. And there are just so many beautiful shots scattered throughout. This has probably got some of the best footage in the rain that I've ever seen. But it's ninjas in the rain, in color. And you're just like, oh my God. God, yeah, that is... rooftop <laughs> rain sequence. I mean, it's not raining. It's, I don't know, unleashing hell on this. This is the typhoon, and they're on just this architectural, shimmering, just giant slab of a roof. And, and as they're fighting, you just see the swords glinting, and it's really, really stunning. The camera moves, really pans alongside of them as they're running on the slanted roof. Just absolutely insane. Now, where were all these movies being shot? Was there like a studio that was just cranking yeah, all, these out? Yeah, different studios. So Dai does the Shinobi no Mono, but Toy answers right away. So 17 Ninja is directly the answer in the same year to exploit that craze, and they do 17 Ninja Part 1 and 2. And so they are able to employ and maneuver very different uh They have a very different style, even though Toy copies some of the bleakness of those films. They bring together, uh, they bring an older, other tradition into it. And so um, every movie, every major Japanese, Shochiku, maybe the least, does um, uh, Toho the least and Shochiku the least, but Toei and and I basically full-on go into the ninja craze and they exploit these. And yeah, you have basically, like in the Inagaki films, you have insanely beautiful nature shots on location, but then always paired with the interiors of the castle with even a ninja hunt, which feels so enclosed. It's basically a whodunit ninja uh, uh, mystery movie, but you get these mountain paths and, 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 uh, and these shafts of light through. So they, it's really uh, something that's uh, has to be seen to be believed. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's magnificent the skills that goes into some of the throne rooms the 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 just the the sparsity but then when you enter the secret chamber of the lord and how decked out it all is some of the armor in here it's 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 incredible there's a great scene also i'm i'm sure you love this as they're gathering troops they 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 more of the ninja code basically the 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 ninja are the last remnants they're now beggars they steal to get by they have to employ all these techniques and Mimi of Iga is a really great character that appears he's basically passing the test and he's like if you really stab your own hand if you're willing to to fight for us and and his it's it's such a great scene and 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 uh uh he basically then takes the knife because he wants to be employed he stabs his own hand and then he screams in agony he's like will you hire me and then he basically gets shunned and he's like no because a real ninja wouldn't have screamed amazing moments here this is really really high on my all-time list yeah, uh, I think castle of, the, of, owls. of the ones that we saw my favorites would be castle of owls i think mm, samurai spy the second Shinobi no Mono, and then the ninth Shinobi no Mono. Like, all four of those, I just was like, oh, my 
God. Yeah, and two in between, two in between are actually some of my favorites is the third Ninja and Ninja Hunt, which are... Ninja Hunt, you just... get like Ronin versus Ninja. It's almost people like, people like well, who would win in a fight? Like the boxer or the karate guy or the judo guy yeah, or but, the jiu-jitsu guy. But yeah. you get Ronin versus Ninja over and over and over again. And I was like, fuck, yes. Because you see so many great Ninja versus Ninja moments in all these movies, but very rarely yeah. do you see like a samurai in armor, like a fucking tank chasing people around and obviously the ninja are using misdirects and they're running away and they're using you get to see just like the contrast and styles and strategies and techniques and one person's like stop falling for all their stupid tricks like that's like ninjas that's what they do they, they do tricks like stop falling for them etc and so and also ninja hunt you've got that awesome saxophone score throughout i was like all right this is uh oh my god it's got it's got its yeah. own style no, Ninja Hunt is it's incredible. Yeah, that's like uh, uh, it's really high on my list. That score is is insane. It's uh, it's it's uh, somehow they reversed some of the sounds. It's like played backwards, and 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 then and then it's really eerie tension in the air. And yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really great movie. But um, um, what I was just saying, sorry about the Castle of Owls. It gets remade actually in 1999. I've never seen it because it's also done by one of my favorite directors, uh, Masahiro Shinoda, who's responsible for Samurai Spy. But he remade this, and I was always so scared. I don't think it can live up. Now, was to it that a movie. fresh adaptation of the book, or was it a yeah. remake? No, it's a fresh adaptation of the book, as I understand. I don't gotcha. know because. I think it has some. I mean, the costumes alone make you go like, I don't know. It gets little those little uh, golden sashes a little bit more involved in the ninja costumes and stuff. It's, I, I'm sure it's tastefully done, but I kind of shied away from it. And yeah, the second of attack, maybe just to mention here again, Dogen's house. Yuzo attacks Dogen, who's the Koga master, and he's shot from underneath the house, and he tries again and. Dogen slides out the trapdoor, and in this kind of realistic, it's not really realistic, but down-to-earth kind of ninja tale, all of a sudden we get this split second of a wire work where Dogen launches forward, and it's so jarring because unexpected, and it's, you know, Dogen basically he gets his arm cut off, Yuzo comes down so hard on him, I mean the force is really felt, and he chops his arm off, and then Dogen goes like, well go kill me, and then uh, I want to live, maybe, uh, but if you grant me this wish, you let me live. And Yuzo lets him live, and right away, Dogen mocks him. He's like, ha, I knew it. You're not a real warrior. If you were a real warrior, you would have killed me as he collapses under his wound. Like he, It's just so many of these really great differences, as you said, between the ninja and the, the code of the samurai, the honorable samurai. And here we get these two ninjas, schools and philosophy, philosophies coming at each other, friends who who ultimately... Yeah, Gohei, uh, that that last duel in the rain on the room uh, on on the rooftop is 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 an unusual happy ending. Follows that's yeah, not yeah. He like, gets to kind of fall in love and walk off into the sunset with the girl, or walk down like he gets to actually kind of retire in peace and happiness. But what I like that's this theme of like, but this theme of friends kind of fighting each other or being forced to compete. It gets repeated in Third Ninja, which I thought was yeah. really cool as well, where you've got people who've known each other since childhood, and they're basically being told, well, you have to compete to get the head of this person we're trying to kill. Whoever wins gets 500 koku. Whoever loses gets put to death. I was like, what the fuck? Like, that's because they're trying to yeah. kill this ninja, Chidoken, 
But like the third oh, ninja, that's I mean, one of the best villains. Yeah, yeah. But I, my only grievance against Third Ninja is that when I watched it on YouTube, it was a pan and scan version of, oh, of the movie. Yeah. And if there's anything to be said about Japanese movies from this period, it's that gorgeous black and white widescreen cinematography. I could not fucking believe that this was the only version of the Third Ninja I could see. So the yeah. performances were intact and the fights were great, but I didn't get to appreciate the visuals to the degree that I would like. But Chidokin as the villain in Third Ninja having like alternate identities and the ability to like to transform. He's like, he's like you said, he's the scary ninja living in the pit <laughs> whose master yeah. wants him to assassinate Nobunaga. Yeah. He's one of the coolest characters out of all these 10 that I saw. Yeah. Kijo, uh, uh, um, Koji Nambara plays him and he's in Kazunobushi, which is warriors of the wind. Another great ninja movie we can't discuss because it's impossible to see. He plays Neko in that the cat. Also, amazing villain. Really, really cool. It's my favorite part in that movie. But he's in everything. The Human Condition, The Bad Sleep Well, Branded to Kill, Eleven Samurai, Samurai Banners. A great, great Japanese character actor. And Chidoken with the demon voice and the reveal at the end is really when it gets to... This is where my sweet spot is. I like the realism, but I also need my villains to be superhuman. And that comes up in Mission Iron Castle again. And it's really that, that that's the standout. Kotaro Satomi is the is the star in this one. Uh, he's a breakout Tohei star. This is another Tohei movie, 1964. So this is 1964, another one. So you really see that they follow one after the other. And this has really all the classic ingredients again. It's the action, the mission, the villains, uh, very much like Castle of Owls. Maybe it's, if you describe it, it's like Once Upon a Time in the West. And this is more like a, for a few dollars more. It, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, the high grass battle, the, the, the moat, the underwater ninja action, the escape from the tunnel. They tunnel under the mansion, the hot tub trap, basically, which they pour down. It's, there's so much in this movie which are just great, great flourishes. We see uh, Kaisato returns. He's in all those movies. Um, um, he's, he's the other guy. He's, 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 uh, he's Tone's... Um, counterpart and yeah uh, um, as he kind of takes on we, we see right away this dark master is basically shadowing them the whole time and, and, and uh, observing them and one of my favorite parts in this why this is a real standout besides the villain is that we really see something that we rarely see in other movies we see the, the ega life how ninjas are being hired out we see a clan in operation and we see and the contempt uh, uh, that their employer has for him he's almost like oh well, it's like yeah. we're gonna bet on like the tame dog and the stray dog and they all laugh at him it's like wow like they really have like a, a, it's like a, like a class system and the ninjas are a disposable commodity that uh, aren't, are, are kind of almost beneath human in their, in their employer's eyes in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's real business. This is straight-up business. We see people coming in, customers, they're being, they're being taken into a room, there's a business negotiation. And, I mean, ninja often in the West, we always think they're in dark uh, uh, clad, always the same, kind of looking like samurai, but they're actually often in the Kamui series, they're like farmers. I mean, they live a rural life. They train in all these arts, but they always often have a fur vest and like these really cool local garb. And, and here, you really see one of the hardest depictions of like what a former ninja has to suffer through. I mean, the old code Monori Yohei, he's, 
he's once been a great ninja, but now he lives as a cripple, as a servant. He lost an arm, his tongue is cut out, and basically he never talked, but now he's yeah. like and employed he gets, as a dishwasher. And he gets abused dishwasher. like a crippled dog throughout the, uh, the yeah. movie. But he does get a nice bit of revenge. Oh, very nice. Where he kills his revenge master with an axe and drops yeah, him through this like, exactly. trap door into a pit of spikes. I was like, all right, well, he's, he's still a ninja in spite of his missing tongue and missing arm and, and, and crippled leg. Yeah, well-deserved. And Keihaji, so Keihaji is, the, uh, is uh, Keisato. He gets his arm cut off in the final battle when Shidoken reveals himself, the demon face. Yeah, this which has is got one of the best cool. climaxes of any of them where you've got like one guy gets his arm. I mean, this person, Yonkame, who's been like an ally of theirs throughout, is revealed to actually be Shidoken, who looks hideous. And he hacks yeah. off his buddy's arm. They have the epic battle of the other ninja. But like in the Keihaji, he creates a distraction that allows Tone to, to kill Shidoken. And it was like, yeah, it's... This is what you want with like a Mexican standoff oh, game with these three total badasses going to war. Absolutely, the way he holds a sword in this special way, really close to his face, and the the the, the glimmer on the sword almost becomes his third eye in this demon mask. It's like glinting in, at the top of his head and kind of distracts, hypnotizes uh, Tone. It's really great and at the end as it all comes to draws to a close basically his daughter confronts him we won't get any into any of this but incredible composition and he carves in the sign ninja ninja the sign at the, at the end of the tree as they walk off and and it's like yeah you could have seen kind of way more maybe they have been i only know of this one but this this is one of these standalones that doesn't have another series coming uh, yeah, beautiful Tohei one. The next one is also Tohei. We've mentioned it before. Ninja Hunt is also 1964. And that's almost... I love when within the genre, this is what Marvel's been so successful with, when they apply... Like, let's do a genre within the genre, a particular look, a take. And this is like a murder mystery almost. This is the Haunted House movie, but in a, in a castle. Uh, it's really, really cool. And, um, and some really disturbing imagery. We have like people being found in the morning with like their bellies cut open with like needles yeah. through their eyes and like these challenges. And yeah, like uh, like the or like we've got the Ronin being beat up and like just like beaten within an inch of their lives as because they're being suspected of like working with the ninja. And I'd, this yeah. is one yet another really brutal movie. And you have these all these people looking for this letter and like destroying the, the fake letter. And anyway, it's it's kind of complex, but also. Like there's like some like very few of these movies have a like overt sexuality, but there's one girl who like kind of lures a guy in and like lets him suck her titty, and she's like stabbing him yeah, twice. The demon nun, yeah, yeah, and yeah. saying it's the way of the ninja, and then he chokes her to death. I was like, oh my fucking god, this movie's <laughs> just not pulling any punches. Yeah, uh, Yoshiro Konoe is like uh, he's the main um, Ronin in this, and he's playing kind of a similar role like in Seventeen Ninja. He's kind of the ninja hunter. And he's the first Jubei Yagyu in, 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 in uh, Japanese cinema. He's the legendary samurai on the status of like Musashi. And he's, in his, he's kind of the first uh, uh, on-screen uh, personification of that. So he's great as that. And then he's got Bin Amatsu, this great character actor and everything. He's one of the best ninja villains, really kurando. So as you see, we're getting later... In these movies, the villains become stronger and stronger because what they really clearly saw that what the audience wanted to see a match for the for the hero. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
Yeah, he's really, his face, the way, it's like a death, like a skull face in the mask. It's really important. It's like, almost like with football players. How do you look in the helmet? It's really, if you look like a dork in the helmet, you're never going to be respected. The same goes for the ninja outfit. The way your eyebrows have to match and the way your face sits within the many choices you get in the wraps, the head wraps. Binamatsu is really one of the very best here. And this is a great atmosphere. Like, cinematography is especially dark and um, um and, and gloomy here. It's really avant-garde score with like reverse noises that builds the tension. It's a great, really cool premise. Basically, the Koga Ninja are working for the Shogun and have infiltrated this family, and the Toyotomi vassals want to sniff them out. And they hire these Ronin to basically flush these out. And it gets determined that there are eight new hires, and and all of these eight, like you said. They get fucking. It's not a hero move by at all by these uh, Ronin. They beat them, and all they want to see is like they're, they're basically taking revenge on their already one of their fallen comrades. But they beat them or cut them down. They basically massacre them while they're tied up. I mean, they have no chance to defend themselves. And all we see is like one tries to escape, and so that's the ninja, the guy that jumps up on leaps up onto the wall so basically the, the the torture really worked you know they they sniff one of them out and he basically said uh, their philosophy is you you need to be cruel to kill the ninja you you need to make sacrifices exactly to kill he, he keeps repeating that like if you're not willing to do something horrible like sacrifice your own then you're not gonna you're not gonna actually be able to survive no this situation chance. yeah and he actually one time he says i can't beat kurando i can't beat him like, it's so great that he admits that. And it's a, it makes you tingle. Like, in the movie, you're like, wow, this is really, really great. And Kurando has great demon voice. He echoes the voice in the temple scene where kind of his face, his appearance get, get shot around. You get these all these shots of these carved deities in the temple. And then his voice echoes over them. And, yeah, he has the one of the first incidents I've seen of that famous spike shot where he, he kind of shoots spikes out of his mouth in, into the eye of the attacker. Uh, this is in a bunch of 80s movies as well, but here you see it employed really, really scary. And it's basically, we got to make one more night till this messenger arrives. And as the old lord dies and the young baby, the young son lord, uh, uh, they're observing the funeral. He, the Ronin know that's a chance. The, the, he, Kurando has to show up during this funeral because that's basically the last time he gets to kill the young lord. And so we get this amazing uh, showdown in the sealed tomb. And this is one of the times really where you get a true sense of how terrifying the ninja must have been. Like just the water dripping and the tension in that. And when the shurikens fly, you really get a jolt. I mean, they come out of nowhere. It's like really brutal. And even at the end, they cannot defeat this guy. They have to win super ugly, basically throw their bodies onto him to weigh him down and stab through their body, through their friend's body to get to this guy even. I mean, yeah, this is one of my very favorites. And um, this is, yeah, this is a real masterpiece.
Beautiful. All right, well, let's switch gears to one of the big dogs on this list, which will probably be the easiest to find for people out there, at least if you live in America, because uh, Samurai Spy from 1965 is part of the Criterion Collection, and it's on the Criterion channel, and it's beautifully restored. So for people out there who really love pristine kind of like working conditions when they're watching their movies, maybe Samurai Spy might be the best place to start. But before we get yeah. into this, I wanted to ask you this uh, because I mentioned it on our first aborted attempt at uh, recording the episode, but do you draw any distinction between samurai films and ninja films, or are they part of the same family? Because obviously this movie is called Samurai Spy, but it is a ninja movie. And is are there any stylistic kind of ingredients that you expect from a ninja movie that separate them from your traditional heroic samurai films, or is it kind of an arbitrary, imaginary distinction? So... I don't draw any real distinction. They are not enough. In the Jidaigeki genre, there are so many more samurai films with some tiny ninja elements in them. Ninjas appear sometimes, but the out-and-out ninja films are really, yeah, they're, they're so special, but I don't mind when they bleed over. So, so and this one is almost, yeah, it's, it's really unique because Samurai Spy only came out as an as a awkward translation of the actual Ibun Sarutobe uh, Sasuke is just basically the best he's one of the most famous uh, ninja folklore characters of all time he's often depicted as a young boy his name really translates as saru means monkey tobi means jump so it's, he's in the folklore he's often raced by the um, by monkeys and he's monkey jump and and everybody knows this every kid knows this character so what masahiro shinoda does he and this very clever art house. This is probably the most classy of all the ninja films we'll be discussing. If you're, like if, you're, you said, uh, maybe a if you're a Criterion snob, this is, the yeah, this is the movie for you. Yeah, definitely art house. If this is for the ones that they're not so much into the uh, the other ones, as we it turns you off this one, give this one a try because this is done by one of the all-time great Japanese directors. And uh, if we ever get this phone call to work again, we have to do an episode on just Masahiro Shinoda films. I mean, he does one of the best Yakuza films in 1964, Pale Flower. He does Assassination, which is one of the best samurai movies with Tatsuro Tamba in 1964. Same year, it's mind-blowing. And then in 65, this is 1965, he does this really, really cool take basically on one of his beloved childhood uh, things they all we all remember this day in japan especially they remember this ninja especially with lots of love he's uh part of the japanese new wave with oshima but what he makes a distinction very much like the distinction between goda and truffaut he believes in really taking this kind of sub-genre like you almost say like ninja's dirty genre and making it an art house interpreting it reinterpreting it in such stylistic flourishes that it's it's just mind-blowing yeah, I think stylistically, to... this is probably the yeah. most beautiful, and in terms of filmmaking oh, yeah. technique, probably the most sophisticated. So once again, for the people who are slightly more highbrow or elevated in their tastes, Samurai Spy is probably the best gateway drug. Yeah, it has a lot of the Christian themes. He is, by the way, the director of the original Silence, not Martin Scorsese. This is another one of my big uh, maddening topics with number and his wife who is one of the all-time world beauties, Shima Iwashita. She's in all the Ozu movies. She's a giant beauty movie star. She's in Kinoshita films, Late Autumn, Autumn Afternoon. Everybody will recognize her instantly. And later on, he kind of creates a lot of vehicles for her. The Ballad of Orin, which is a great uh, movie. Himiko, super art house movies. Uh, but she's she can be found everywhere. Tiny roles in Sword of the Beast, and, and, and all of a sudden... 
she pops up and is one of the true. They were like the power. I mean, I don't know how to describe it, the absolute power couple of Japanese cinema. Master director. He started at Shochiko as well in the 1950s. He was an assistant director to Ozu. So he has all the credentials you want. Part of the new wave. And he all of a sudden does this super cool genre. He does these three amazing genre films in the 60s. And yeah, the, the plot, don't even get into it. I mean, this is, you thought what we talked about so far is confusing. This one is really winding and twisting, and it's taken a lot from the legend, but it's also based on uh, a famous novel, which uh, observes Sasuke from a different angle. And total yeah, I basically, in order to understand the here, plot on this one, I had to hop on Wikipedia and a couple other things and like just look up the summary, and I was like, all right, now I get it. But I was totally i was enjoying the beauty and the sequences so and the choreography yeah. but i had to look up the nuances of the plot to even begin to make sense of it yeah the, 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 maybe it's worth pointing out really also masao kusugi is the dp in here because as we talked about this is just mind-blowing cinematography it's he's in all those shinoda movies i mentioned he's the dp for for the classics pale flower and just every frame is a painting you can stop this movie at any time just to, this is really special and um yeah, um, Toji Takahashi is not a big famous actor. He doesn't do much else. I've never really seen him in anything else, but he's kind of the perfect, he's hired as the face. He's Sasuke. He's the perfect face from the comic book. Like if you read the comic books, if you see how he's imagined in popular folklore, his face is almost made the high cheekbones to the, the profile is insane for this guy. You can just look at him forever. He's just, and when he finally dons the ninja outfit, he's just, oh, it's just mind-blowing. Fantastic. And Tatsuro Tamba returns. He's, of course, in a movie we discussed, one of the best movies of all time, uh, Seppuku. He's the villain in that who has that great duel in the high grass with Nakadai. He's Taiga Tanaka in The Bond, You Only Live Twice. Um, he's in this. So Keisato returns from Onibaba. And it has probably my all one of my all-time favorite cinema moments it's it's a sequence when sasuke enters the inn and it kind of all slows down when he's at the top of the stairs and he's sensing something and the slot he slides into a shaft of light that yeah, beams directly from the opposite door. and yeah. the composition yeah the composition is so mind-blowing because you the stillness we see his sweat dripping he just holds this position he holds this and he reaches in for a dart and then as he throws the dart we see slow motion just as he runs along the corridor and slides open that door the screen door in slow motion in there we see Tatsuda Damba as the white monk just standing in there like it, that sequence is worth all the price of admission it's insane like buy the DVD just for that sequence yeah I mean this movie's got this movie's got a couple sequences that I think are up there, but like when you've got uh, Sasuke riding up to Takatani on the bridge, and then the battle commences, and then the other time mm. when he's running down that giant hill to defend his friend who's surrounded, I mean, there's just one sequence after another where you're like, oh my god, like this is like the most one of the most mm -hmm. stunningly beautiful films that I've ever seen, and so I think this is probably the most stylistically distinctive in terms of filmmaking craft. Yeah. Of all the ones that uh, that we've discussed today, and so I, I was just in awe. But if you just like good old fashioned genre cinema, you've got one guy dressed in black and one guy dressed in white, and they're fast, fascinating characters. They yeah. have different fighting styles, and you just see them kind of colliding and competing, and sometimes helping and sometimes fighting throughout the entire movie. And I, I find just uh, just seeing them on the screen together, it's irresistible. But also just. 
the real innovation, innovative shots, the framing of the action, sometimes we just follow a child with a dead bird and behind him is this insane battle going on. We see it through the slits of the buildings, but we're yeah. not in the battle at all. In the end, the final fight, we almost lose them, the forlorn figure in the fog. We are not part of the action. We're like on top of the building. He puts us on the vantage point far away. And even the final, when Sasuke, the fog is lifted and he's losing the battle against Kai Sato, his chain around his neck. He's being, he's being, Sasuke is, is, is dying. And all of a sudden, out of the fog, we get a dart coming through, which is one of the most glorious ninja uh, fan, fic, fan, how do you call it? Fan service moments of all time, which is totally lost on the Western audience because Sasuke is all the Saizo is coming to the rescue, and it's a great quote for Japanese film. This is why uh, uh, Shinoda did it. It's basically a Raizo lookalike, and he plays the young uh, Saizo, the misc, who comes strolling through the fog, and the friends are reunited once again. It's like one of the absolute joyful ninja moments that totally gets lost if you just watch this as an outsider you're like what the fuck is this ending i, I will admit like, i was happened? a little bewildered when that happened i was like oh i was like that was <laughs> kind of abrupt <laughs> yeah it's basically if like it's it's like it's like uh yeah named any two figures like it's it's like uh, captain america and all of a sudden gets saved by iron man and you're like right away these guys belong together it's it's that big it's it's the absolute and the way he's portrayed it's I love this so much about Shinoda because he really takes care to follow the comic book, he the, the manga. He's he's really take when Saizo arrives, it's instantly recognizable as Saizo. It's it's so great, and and uh, there are many times rivals again. Uh, they're Koga and and Iga mixed, um, and so cool. I mean, yeah, this movie has it all. It's just well, another scene that I really joy. like is when uh, Takatani gives him two ninjas to help track down the girl, and they've like one of them has like a scent that he can track, and you see these three ninjas sneaking into this castle looking for the girl, and they're being followed by these men in masks, but. They, it almost feels like an Assassin's Creed game set in medieval Japan, but they're using diversions and they save the girl and they save Yashiro, but they can't escape unless he's like willing to kill a whole bunch of dudes. And so like a total beast, he takes on like an entire army and he's killing a ton of them and he's standing out in front of the girl with his arms outstretched oh, yeah. as the archers are moving in. And it was just one of the most kick-ass battles, battle scenes I'd seen in, in recent memory. Absolutely. And this movie's just it's overflowing with these like astonishing, iconic sequences. Yeah, this is really like, I mean, to come off this, this, this run of Pale Flower assassination and then this, it's probably the best movie run of any director, maybe besides uh, Kurosawa, that's just pulling off these genre beasts in every, uh, one after another. And like, just... Yeah, like you said, you can pour when Sasuke gets captured by the ropes and you just pause that on the widescreen. Just the way that architecturally the ropes flow, it's, 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 it's a painting. It's a, it's, a, it's a Japanese, directly from a Japanese scroll. And, well, and if you were to pick yeah, a 10-year period that you would qualify as the golden age of Japanese cinema and you have to pick a beginning year and an ending year, Ooh. what for you is the peak? Because it seems like right now in the 60s, you've got the old guard like Kurosawa and uh, like Kobayashi and all these guys still doing incredible work, but you've got this Japanese new yeah. wave as well. What is the sweet spot? Because it's almost it's almost overwhelming how many good movies are coming out of this country at this particular time. Yeah, so because it's it's really hard because I do love what comes in the 70s and it's kind of the movie that we'd be discussing saving for for the end. It's 
it, it, you sense the 70s coming with all the beautiful exploitation cinema, the biker movies, the Yakuza movies, the girl prison movies. It's all about to take off in a whole nother level. I don't want to miss out on it, but how can you just the 60s, just pick the 60s, boom, and you're done. I mean, just all of the 60s, even though the 50s are great. I don't know what to do. I mean, I just always think I always have this, like, if you're only able to take one country of movies onto a desert island, and it's for me, it's just never a question that it's Japan. If I get all these, and the only thing that drives me crazy is the, the, the tip of the iceberg. I've been hunting for these for over, you know, 30 years now, and I, I'm not able to find good dubbed version, uh, subtitled versions, or even still to this day, really big classics that I see mentioned over and over again that I'm not able to see. And it drives me crazy. Like the time I was in Japan, I was just going to the video store every night renting movies. Some very luckily mysteriously had subtitles. Others I just watched and figured it out. And I was just reveling in the stills. As you can do with this, you can just turn off the sound, not understand anything about the ninja, the history that goes on. Just a beautiful movie that's just baffling, baffling sequences. All right. Well, let's. Yeah, it's hard. Let's, I would pick the '60s. Gotcha. Sorry. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, I'm surprised you don't start your golden age with Seven Samurai and move forward because I know Seven Samurai obviously is a, is a big one as well. Yeah. But I, it's I talked about this a bit with Patrick Bromley when we did our episode about uh, Umberto Lenzi about how when it comes to like Italian genre cinema, sometimes it can be overwhelming there as well. We're like, oh my God, there's like quite literally hundreds if not thousands of obscure genre films that I'm desperate to see. How will I find them? Do I have enough time? And I feel like the same holds yeah. true with Japan where both countries from the mid-50s to the mid-70s had art house, mainstream, obscure, like any kind of genre you can think of. Anything. And, and I feel like yeah. Italy and Japan are just running neck and neck side by side at this point. And uh, I don't know, they seem to have these like simultaneous golden ages that are tough to rival and Very here we are in different. 2020 and we're still sifting through this extraordinary output trying to find all the gems yeah the insemination of course is back and forth uh, with america looming as the big uh big brother to imitate hollywood but italy and japan really trade blows they're both island cultures really even though italy's connected but they only speak no other country speaks their language the family is really important i've noticed more uh, in common with uh, Italy in when I was living in Japan than any other nation. The, the sense of family, the, the honor, the respect, the way society is set up, it's very, very similar. So it, it's only, um, only uh, yeah, fitting somehow that they kind of influence each other. And that's how I kind of, yeah, that's how it got filtered through to me. There's really cool, like like we said, Detective Fencer was from a was uh, from a TV show, The Samurai, who made it over to Australia, who all of a sudden became absolutely giant, and it ran like through 128 episodes, and all Australians know about this, and they kind of knew ninjas in the 60s, and uh, it was a surprise hit, and it didn't, it stopped there, it didn't never translated to. Uh, the American market, even though it was already in English. I mean, it's bizarre. It has underwater battles, and there are two feature-length movies made from it. Absolutely. I mean, really hunt this down to, to take the fencer if you get a chance to. It's all also got um, returning... Uh, uh, um, uh, Binamatsu, the really cool villain, is returning. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's just... Um, it will be uh, forever be able to exploit and go back to the well. There's a there's a really cool moment in basically in um, in uh, Detective Fencer, which I wanted to point out, but it's getting too long. Uh, doesn't matter. Let's let's hit into 
the number nine of uh, Iron Castle. Absolutely. So Shinobu no Shu, a.k.a. Mission Iron Castle from 1970, by far one of the strongest films we're discussing today. So I, I'm going to, this is our last movie on our to-do list, so set the stage. What is the premise? Because I feel like this is a movie you could make, like, Anytime, and it's so this, the premise is so simple, and it's so effective, and it, it felt like like the coolest comic or the coolest video game or the coolest movie or the coolest shit. But like, I love it when you have a simple premise that's executed to absolute perfection. So, what is the gist? What is what is going on in Mission Iron Castle? Yeah. So after Rizo's death, they were basically they get in in the Shinomi Nomono Eight. They kind of reboot itself. Rizo plays a younger version of uh, again of of an earlier movie in the series, but it kind of that by then it's kind of lost its steam. Then he dies, unfortunately, and Dai uh, is is on the verge of bankruptcy. And they're trying one last time to to breathe life as the ninja. Golden Age is really dying down. This is the last hurrah, last great movie that they're managing to tack onto this astonishing run of nine movies. And it's a complete, nobody returns from the old cast. Katsumori is the director again, who does t a total of five movies on and off in the series. So he's the most returning director. And it really is, in many ways, the end, which is also felt in the movie as a theme. It's the end of the ninja. It's also the end of the 60s. And the 70s are coming on strong with their themes in this movie as well. And then um, Hiroki Matsukata is one of the biggest uh, ninja actors. He takes over from Raizo. He moves to Dai. From, he started in Toei, where his father started. So his father, this gets a bit confusing, almost like the ninja. This, his father is uh, Konoe. He's playing the ninja hunter in, uh, in uh, Ninja Hunt. He's the samurai. He's the first Yubi Yagui. He's the he, he's uh, this actor's father, and he's over at Toy. So he gives his son, who wanted to become a singer, a leg up to start there in the 60s. But as Raizo vacates his spot, he moves over to Dai, and he's kind of groomed to replace Raizo. And yeah, this movie is so great because it's basically, like you said, it's 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 just the mission. There's nothing around it. It's just kidnap the lady from this heavily fortified castle. Yeah, an iron up. castle and, and, with nothing but traps inside. There was an issue of Daredevil I read as a kid yeah. where every single room was like a deadly trap that he had to evade. And there was no dialogue. Just one escape after another. And it was like just the worst night yeah. of his life. And as they were going through this castle, like, oh, my God, this is like that Daredevil comic where – it and it's fitting at the end of a decade of ninja movies where the audiences are already familiar with all the tricks that ninja are capable of that you would have a setting designed to trap and kill ninja over and over and over again so it's like you got to raise the like the bar because the audiences aren't going to be satisfied with this yet another familiar spin on what we've already seen we need this epic scenario with a castle designed to kill ninja yeah exactly and it's so yeah, it's so bleak. It really goes into horror. I mean, it opens with the, the famous, many displayed even throughout these films here, the Nobunaga raid on the monastery, trying to stamp out the ninja crucifixion scene again. Just absolutely glorious cinematography. All the staples we come to know. But here has a little few cool details. Again, the two friends, one out for fame and the other one out for revenge, like trying to keep up the honor. But we get a really cool girl here as well. Orin. Oh, she's so and precious. I love her. I had a huge Michio Suke, yeah, she's one of my super crushes of Japanese cinema. So beautiful. She's in Satoichi, Lone Wolf and Cub. She's the ladies, Tangezazen. She's in Sigoyna Weisen by um, 
Suzuki. Um, and she, as we see these ninja like kind of fencing, now having to use their skills to make a new living, stealing, but even like getting the gear in this, in the hut, the way the grappling hooks, the way he's packing up for the mission is, is just another great thing. Just so matter of fact, like I need a couple of darts, shuriken, I need this, I need ropes, I need a climbing ladder. It's it's just great. It's just really fantastic performance. And yeah, it's, it's basically the ninja... Uh, coming together for one last mission and they decide to all attack this castle, kind of split up and give themselves more of a chance to rescue this lady from the inner court of the castle, which yeah. is made entirely Well, they have to not only iron. rescue her, she can't have a mark on her. They got to kidnap her and she can't even yeah. be touched. And she's like basically in this iron box within an iron castle. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and also from one of your favorite movies, it, it really echoes Excalibur. The crows picking at them, and the feet are all slashed with crosses. And you got that and one topless female of, ninja line there as well. Like, uh, it's, there's not a lot of nudity in these movies, yeah. but that caught me off guard where you've got this. Very Conan. Yeah, the battle is just a total wasteland of dead ninja, but they've all got that mark on their foot. And you're like, ooh, somebody's like systematically yeah. taking the ninja out. Yeah, Aizen Mio. It's another great ninja villain. Yeah, he's the, the oldest, oldest the living ninja. ninja. He's maybe 100 years old and he has the power to change his yeah. appearance so i the He's only time i was like scared exactly. while watching all these movies was the when we hear like this lady ninja speak this uh koyomi or koyomi talking in an old man voice and the face starts to change and he starts threatening yeah. to put a sign on the dude's feet and there's like That's... fire illusions and things like that and like that whole scene i was like oh my god we're like in supernatural horror territory it's part of the 70s again such a 70s thing this 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 reinvention because he gets built up so big, the oldest Iga ninja, the shapeshifter. And then we get this amazing flourish of Aizemiro, who appears as a woman demon, a beast in the fog. Like it's basically a side-by-side Marcus Pin with the exorcist, just backlit in this great fog. And just then an unremarkable death, a lucky shot. And what we see is left of this great illusion. It's just a dirty little old man just lying there, completely demythologized this ninja that, that was basically using tricks to make himself larger than life to really kill in this amazing fashion in this uh, to to create this bigger scary uh, illusion or maybe he once was a true great ninja we will never find out but it's it's such a great um movie and it has has exactly what we discussed also in the previous episode why i love wheels on meals so much as jackie chan because it's basically the same premise again we all tackle this castle we all go our own way and then uh, what happens to each you see how they fight through the the various traps and underground water rising and 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 how they like make the it big through rakes the on the roofs that like slam down yeah. if, if it detects anybody's trying to climb up and over the wall like all the ninja tricks the building is designed to counteract and that's what i thought was so cool because we were so used to the ninja being able to climb into anything scale anything sneak through anything but it's like no you can't walk down the hallways because the floors collapse you can't climb the walls because spikes are going to get you like everything the ninja yeah. typically do there's a counterattack. yeah this is really one of the most satisfying movies and it's really a great ending to this this really golden age if they get this 10-year run or seven-year run but it's it really ends and and it gets like this great send-off and it's almost like the ending as well as they're successfully rescuing her it gets another nihilistic kind of giving it up and th- those shots by the sea and that hut is just incredible yeah she ends up cutting her real... throat as they debate whether to deliver her or not and i was like Ugh, that's kind of bleak yeah but it's but it feels appropriate i mean the good news also with this movie i was able to find 
find a really strong copy. The only downside was, oh, was on, a, on one of the legal sites where you have to have a lot of ad blockers in order to watch it. But once I got over that hump, it's a, it's a short movie. It's like 75 minutes. It's super lean and efficient, but it's just stunning. And yeah. I think this might also, be, I mean, I keep saying this, this might also be a good gateway drug. You don't need to know the rest of the Shinobi no Mono movies to appreciate this. But I think all you have to do is just love, you just have to love great genre cinema and you can just dive right into this fucking thing. Yeah, exactly. And we, we get the signs of the exploitation Japanese cinema to come by they're deciding this clearly to shoot it in black and white, to tie it into the history, to tie it into the series. But yeah, hooks in any of these uh, uh, and, and start. And I mean, I, I, uh, it's a special select group that lives in the shadows so far that loves these movies, but uh, they really deserve to get a wider audience looking at them. And, and um yeah, I hope you can, you yourself, you can track down the 17 Ninja, some of the best. There's Kazenobushi, as I said, Warriors of the Wind is fantastic, the Inagaki. There's many, many more, and I love, uh, by the way, all the magical uh, uh, ones that come before that as well. But they, they are just not as distinct and special as they bleed over more into other uh, uh, samurai movies and folk tales. This is really like an unprecedented run that kind of mirrors and stomps along the Bond series as the Asian version, as the, as Japan gets aware of, we have our own tradition of spies, like we, we can we can do this, we have all these novels we can exploit. And, but I feel like you uh, could do it, Shinobi no Mono now today, and like make it feel fresh and original all over again, like I just feel like it's such an underutilized format or storytelling scenario, and I I, I I always love like episodes where I get to see movies that I've never seen before, especially when I see ten movies that I've never seen before. Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, like any time you want to come on Wrong Reel and talk about the great until like, like the great masters of Japanese cinema from the 50s through the 70s, we could whether it's through a filmography or through, whether it's through a theme or whatever the case may be. Like I feel like Japan and Italy could keep me busy as a film fan the rest of my life, and I'd probably still reach the end of my days having not seen all the movies that, that I want to see yeah. or need to see. But I just was an absolute heaven every step of the way. And for like a week and a half, every night, I'd be like, all right, it's ninja time. And I would, it'd be the last thing I'd do at the end of the day. I'd get on the couch, I'd smoke a little pot, and I'd watch a ninja movie. And it was just such a great nightly ritual there for a while. I just, I absolutely loved and adored it. Like, I love it when people come on Wrong Reel and just make a really cool pitch for a really cool topic. This is one of the coolest topics that's ever been pitched to the podcast in 507 episodes. Yeah, thank you. I knew this was a one for us, and it was so unwieldy. And as it proved, there's a curse on this episode as we're recording this. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't envy your editing job that you're going to have uh, just to Just to tell the audience as... out there, like I'm right now, I'm looking at my desktop. I've got dozens of audio files because throughout Tony and I have been on the phone now for four hours on Skype, on FaceTime, on landlines. <laughs> piecing together and sometimes we get three minutes sometimes we get 20 minutes sometimes like the voices are going in and out i feel like even as compromised and cursed and broken and shattered as this episode has been due to technical difficulties i still have loved every second of it because also i haven't had a chance to talk to you just by voice in like a year like we talk on twitter all the time but that's just a different thing so it's just been a, a pleasure i guess the, the positive side of all these technical hiccups is i got to hang out with you for four hours online and, and shoot the shit yeah that's true 
I mean, yeah, as we, I, I, I was planning my New York trip and uh, glorious Keen's steak dinners with all the wrong real crew of New York. But that, of course, has never happened. The viruses and my own kind of busy schedule. But yeah, at least um, I'm, I'm really, you're giving me so much more than I can ever give on this episode because it's really my therapy. As I sit and draw in silence, I get to talk and listen to wrong real all the time. And that's, uh, it's been great that we at least, however flawed, be able to introduce and put our foot down into to this ninja genre and uh um maybe moose can come on to do the 70s or i'm talking to some guys now on twitter that have discovered as i've been posting this and i'm i'm 100 sure they will react to this episode uh there's a guy called um i want to do a quick shout out uh keith i think his name is sorry if i get your name wrong is uh he runs a site called vintage ninja it's been uh, absolutely um, uh, uh, a wealth of, of Shinobi content. Uh, I, I stopped looking through it because I didn't want to get too much influenced by him, but he seems to be an absolute expert, and I'm sure he'll uh, uh, comment on this episode. Maybe you can have him on for the 80s, because that's another huge topic, a follow-up of all the glorious 80s ninjas movie out there. I'm, I'm less of an expert there, but yeah, I, I'm sure we'll gather a, slow, uh, a band of ninjas around us who, who love these movies and can connect on them. Well, one day we'll get everybody together in New York and we will ha all wear our favorite ninja attire and brandish our favorite ninja weapons for a big group pick. And uh, yeah, as a, like when I was like seven, I had nunchucks and a fucking and throwing star. And I remember in college, I bought some throwing stars. And I nearly killed a guy. I was waiting for food to be delivered and I turned around just on a whim and hurled it as hard as I could at a door. It hit the middle of the door, and a split second later, the door opens up, and this guy goes, what was that sound? I was like, oh, my God, because he was coming out of the bathroom. This guy's now the headmaster of the school where my three little brothers get a school. Oh, so. nice. <laughs> but I they would have changed the trajectory of his career quite a bit. If he'd opened the door a split second earlier, he would have gotten a shuriken right in the middle of his rib cage. So it's one of the things where I've kind of been <laughs> flirting with um, an interest in Ninja over the year, but it's always been in the context of like 80s comics and 80s cartoons and things like that. So I just it was um it was a, a rare pr privilege to kind of get to go deeper to the source, deeper to the root, deeper to the authentic traditions. So thanks again, Tony, for coming on Wrong Real with uh, such a masterful command of the topic. Like I said before on, the, on Twitter, you are a film history hurricane, and I love just to sit back and just listen to your rant. It's it's a, it's a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. I think this is more di di disjointed uh, than, than than my other ramblings, but uh, I hope our enthusiasm just carries everybody through. And if you, I promise you, once you see one frame of, of Samurai Spy or Ninja Hunt, you will be hooked and you will hopefully seek them out more. And yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, well, Where can people find you online? Where can people buy your art? What DVDs can they look forward to seeing in the near future with your art on the cover? So give us a pl plug, plug everything everything related to Tony Stella before we wrap up. Yeah, all best on Twitter. I will create a, a thread, as I always love to do with all the research and all the pictures to illustrate this episode, to watch along. That's, that's Antonio, St no, Studio T. Stella uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, Tumblr doesn't work anymore, but they're, they're, all the links will appear in there. And anything I uh, kind of, it's uh, on Instagram as well. And anything that comes out will be posted. And yeah, thank you so much for all the support. Well, dude, it's been an absolute blast talking to you, and I'm just—I'm uh, kind of dreading editing this episode, but it's gonna be fun, and it'll be—it'll be. It'll be an oh adventure, my god! But... Hey, 
take your time, please. Even if this comes out as episode it's coming out in the next 24 hours. I got nothing to do for the next day, so I'm just going to hurl myself into this. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down these movies. If you have any questions on where to find them, definitely look look us up. But you can between YouTube and um, uh, what what oh Jesus what what did I say the name of that site was earlier? Asia, uh, uh, Asian Crush. Yeah, a, yeah, Asian yeah. Crush, Criterion Channel and YouTube, and a few illegal sites, but these movies are available, and sadly, there are a few that, that are not, but if you, like I said, it, it just the hunt will be absolutely worth it. It actually become part of the fun, because you get rewarded with these incredible movie-going experiences. In any event, please remember to like the podcast, leave a review, all that good stuff, and if you want some more content in the near future, you can always hunt down my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock. But thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but... Uh... It'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.